Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. Now, normally we upload interviews every other Monday, but as a between episode special, what you're about to hear is a chat we had with Ben Chug and Vaden Masrani of the wonderful Increments podcast. So, the context is that Ben and Vaden had spoken and written about something called long termism, which is roughly the idea that positively influencing and safeguarding the far future should be a central moral priority. Uh, long story short, they are not fans of this idea, or at least of how they perceive it to be playing out in practice. Um, now, Luca and I are also interested in long-termism, and in fact, we plan to line up some interviews exploring its ideas. So Ben and Baden therefore very kindly invited us onto their show to chat about long-termism and to finally get to the bottom uh, of whether it's a good idea. Uh, we ended up having having a blast, and I think the unedited recording was a notch under five hours long. Uh, fortunately, the edit is a bit shorter than that. Uh, I do feel like this episode requires a bit of a warning. Uh, this is a very different format from normal. Uh, it's very much framed as a chat between friends, so do not take everything we say as some super serious or well-thought-out portrayal of our views. Um, and as you'll hear, we're still forming our own views, and there are lots of details and points we totally missed, but that's how it goes. However, this was a really fun exercise, and I think trying to have conversations like this is important, whether or not there are microphones in front of you. Before I place, I just want to mention that Ben and Vaden's own podcast is brilliant, and it features many of the same topics as ours does, plus an abiding love of Karl Popper and critical rationalism. So check them out. Again, it's called Increments, and I've included a link in the show notes, as well as links to Ben and Vaden's Twitters. Now, without further ado, here's the episode. Great. So I'm excited we finally get to do this. Uh, so we have Luca Rigatti and Finn Morehouse. Rigatti, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, God damn it, Aiden. <laughs> Five I, seconds in, I know. already I, sh- I should have, like, practiced the last name, but I definitely did, did not do that. So what's the uh, origin of this conversation? We all are here to talk about long-termism and agree on some stuff, disagree on some other stuff, and... Um, how did this whole thing get started? Maybe we should start start there. Yeah, I think mostly it's because you haven't talked about long-termism. <laughs> um, yeah, what's the story? So you guys have raised some worries about this thing called long-termism. You wrote some things of your own and you talked about it on the podcast. Luca and I happen to be interested in these questions as well. And I think we have some interesting differences to dig into. Um, so feels feels worthwhile yeah. to like have this have this conversation i'm looking forward to it you're here to prove us wrong in a couple sentences in other words <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it'll be the, the so shortest episode down, you've ever had the <laughs> yeah. and we should say uh, you two are the charming hosts of the hear this idea podcast which is a far more successful podcast than ours so you guys are really lowering your standards uh but we appreciate <laughs> we appreciate you guys coming on <laughs> and uh, it should be fun i think we're just giving back uh <laughs> um, we're hoping we're hoping we don't damage your reputation by having you on. Right? Instead, <laughs> hoping you help us raise our reputation. Right. We'll yeah. see how that happens. It could just be con- contagious. So I guess we thought we would begin by all just maybe going around and talking about what the hell we're talking about, because I think it's going to be useful to ground this conversation first by just discussing what we all think 
about when we hear the term long-termism. Um, I think it means different things to each one of us. And so perhaps that's a good place to start. And then hopefully that conversation will just explode into unstructured anarchy after that. Okay, I'll try kicking off then. So what is long-termism? It has a history. It's not a new word. You see it come up in some corners of finance and business, and it means what you would expect it to mean. But the kind of long-termism we're interested in is more specific than that. And it's a kind of... I, so I would describe it as a family of moral views that have emerged in their kind of more precise forms in the last few years. They have a lot to do with the EA movement. Well, I think it, the comparison is to other like exciting, interesting moral-isms. Uh, things like feminism or socialism, where it's just a bit silly to try to pin them down to anything specific because those isms are just broad enough to encompass lots of different views. And sometimes those views actually just internally disagree. Because I think any any like interesting moral view isn't going to be the kind of thing you can pin down in like a formal if and only if definition. And then that said, and we'll get into this, there are specific, like, jargon-filled um, definitions that you can give of different kinds of long-termism. And that's also true of other isms, right? Like, you can be a very specific kind of, of like, socialist or feminist, especially if you're writing philosophy papers. You know, it's really important that you kind of get clear about what you're talking about. So I'm sure we'll do that later. But I think, in general, long-termism is something like, it's a view that is especially concerned with how things go in the very long run. And by very long run, um, people tend to mean something like centuries or millennia. So we're not just talking like the next few, two or three like political cycles. Um, and attached to that, there's also a kind of empirical claim that society doesn't value the future as much as it should. And there are things we can do now to improve how the long run future goes. And then the, the kind of natural conclusion there is that we should do those things. So it's a kind of call to action as well. So that's the kind of the most general definition I would like want to give. And that's kind of what I have in mind when I'm going to be talking about long-termism. Mm. If if I can like add to that, I think from, from where I'm coming from, I think what Finn hit on there is really important that there's not like a clear definition of what long-termism is. And within like isms i guess it's still like something that's that's very new and something that within ea circles you know we're still kind of trying to figure out what exactly it means but the way that i kind of like to think about it is out of this kind of ea perspective is we're interested in doing the most good possible and one really good thing that we've kind of found out in this mission of trying to do this is that it's worth really paying a lot of attention to the kind of stakeholders who tend to get ignored from the system and the first kind of of these stakeholders we found are like the poorest people in developing countries because they just don't have a voice, right, when it comes to this global system. So helping them is like a really effective thing to do because they're already so neglected and already um, it's such a, a bad point that it's a really effective way to do with your money. Um, the next kind of stakeholder group you found is animals who don't have a voice for for obvious reasons and are therefore suffering way more than they should. And now this kind of new idea that I think long-termism brings into 
is that future generations also don't have a voice and they're really being neglected at the moment. And you can see this through things like climate change, I think most, most obviously. But even outside of this, there's loads of things like extinction risks or, or AI safety or other things I think we're going to get into that long-termism really points to and says this is actually really bad that we're ignoring this and we're re- living in a really impatient society that is implicitly hurting these future people. And we should take this really seriously. And it can actually be the case that this is one of the most effective ways to to help and to do good in the world, even if it's less easy to see than some of these other things. I think, yeah, when, when I'm going to refer to long-termism, that's kind of the the viewpoint where, where I'm coming from. So this is sort of the moral circle expansion um, viewpoint where you've taken like moral progress that we've seen over time uh, and and sort of expanding spheres of concern that we've first given to yeah the poorest people and then to animals and this is just sort of arguing that a natural extension of this would be towards people in time um which is captured by the what did you call it finn in your piece the moral cylinder the moral moral time code nice yeah Yeah, i'm proud of that (laughs) finn do you want to explain why it's uh why it's a cone well let's talk about the moral circle which ben mentioned which is this image of the scope of the moral interests we take seriously. Um, This is originally Peter Singer talking about it. His idea is that that circle, very roughly speaking, has expanded over time. And there's also a kind of normative claim there, which is that it should expand. That's a good thing to um, take seriously the interests of more and more uh, moral stakeholders. And... The, so yeah, one one in to long-termism is to think that long-termism is just kind of extending that, that circle even more. But a kind of like silly, but I guess fun way of doing it is to think about the circle extending over another dimension into time, and that would be a cylinder. And then you think about that again, and you think, well, you know, one thing that not just long-termists like to emphasize, but one thing that just seems pretty clear is that the future could be more valuable than the present in terms of just its size and also the kind of things that go on in it. So would it be a cylinder or could it be like a cone? Yeah, I don't think it's like very, a very serious um, analogy, but it's kind of fun to think about. Excellent. Yeah. So perhaps um, I can explain why I'm so worried about this as a way to start kindling some fun disagreement. Um, (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, like I think every time I've talked about this on the podcast, Um, Without fail, I always start by saying that, like, I love EA and I'm not going to break tradition because I love EA a lot, Um, uh, particularly because of, like, all of the super important work that it's um, doing and, say, like, fighting global poverty, like you had uh, mentioned, um, the Against Malaria Foundation or deworming charities or, like, unconditional uh, cash transfers and animal welfare. Like, these are super important issues, uh, which... Um, which EA has has not only talked about but actually done something about, um, and so it's super uh, impressive. Um, but like to any listeners out there, if they care about these issues, then I think that they should be incredibly worried about long termism because I think long termism swallows all of it. It's just it's this argument that demolishes every other form of charitable giving, and it kind of works like this. Um, so the all the arguments from within the space of long-termism roughly take this form. Um, first, you start with some dystopian, nightmarish sci-fi scenario. Um, so, for example, like Black Mirror, uh, the one where John Hamm imprisons people in like an Alexa for like 
a thousand years. Let's take, take that as an example. Um, and then you say, listen, I know that this is unrealistic and I know that there's like an infinitesimally small probability of this scenario happening. But if it does, if it did, the expected amount of suffering it would cause would be infinite. And so you start with some like tiny probability of some crazy scenario happening, like 10 to the negative 10. And then you multiply it by the utility of it uh, not happening or, or um, the disutility of it happening. That's like 10 to the 500. And then you say, oh my God, in expectation, the most important thing we could be doing right now is preventing John Hamm from imprisoning us in an Alexa. Um, <laughs> and, and like lest uh, our listeners think I'm making this up, this is actually on the 80,000 hours website. Um, if, so I would recommend anyone who thinks I'm like being a little bit silly here to go. Ch- John Hamm is on the 80,000 hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so this is called an S-risk. And if you go to um, the May 2020 uh, article titled Our Current List of Especially Pressing World Problems, um, on the top of the list are things like uh, coming up with governance strategies for outer space, um, whole brain emulation, and this thing called S-Risk. And if you click on S-Risk, uh, the See More link, it takes you to uh, a post uh, which starts as a illustrative example with John Hamm in uh, Black Mirror. Um, and then it says, this actually isn't an S-Risk because S-Risks are worse. Uh, this is like the, the low end. Um, and then... If you go further down on the link, uh, <laughs> like I, I, I wish I was making this up. Um, lowest priorities, according to eighty thousand hours, are things like uh, mental health research, biomedical research, and other basic science, and um, increasing access to pain relief in developing countries. So, what is happening um, is that sci-fi scenarios are taking precedence over literally reducing the amount of pain and suffering for people alive right now in Africa. Um, and this is something that they are proud of. Um, so when I say I'm worried about long-termism, uh, specifically what I'm referring to is arguments of those form. Uh, dystopian sci-fi scenario multiplied mm-hmm. by tiny probability of it happening, multiplied by a uh, large expected value if it did happen. Um, because mm-hmm. this style of argumentation can swallow everything that you both listed as, as being important and the stuff that uh, people talk about on your podcasts all the time. So if you care about um, animal welfare, if you care about the poor, as I do, then you should be very worried about um, the popularity of this kind of argumentation. Um, and so this is why I'm so worried about it. And like, this is why I'm really excited to talk with, with both of you, because it is starting to devour 80,000 hours and it's going to uh, continue to move charity by charity, just striking them off the list until we are all just thinking about Black Mirror. Uh, so that's my concern. Like, I, I definitely agree, actually, like with with a lot of what you say. And I think like one important thing to note as well is that like I'm by no means have like a firm opinion um, that, yeah, I, I think it's a super important thing that you two have brought up and like congrats as well on like um, engaging that conversation and replying to like the tons of comments you guys got um like i'm I'm sure that took a lot of effort and stuff but um yeah i I think it's a it's a valuable point you raise there are presumably some people who are really bought into long-termism and have decided that the most impactful thing to do right now is to go through and downvote every single thing ben chuck has posted on the ea forum (laughs) it seems like that anyway (laughs) um so well done for, for sticking around and and um starting this conversation I agree it's it's a worthwhile one to have either side 
either side you're on. One thing I want to ask, Vaden, on, on that point you bring about there, and this is like something I'm not sure about myself though, is let's say that for whatever reason, we take this, we need to stop John Hamm scenario as like the most important priority thing. Like, what do you see the actions to actually stopping that being? And like, how would that lead to this kind of negative world? I think one of the issues that I have is, and I'm not, I'm not sure about this, but like, even if you think about these kind of long-term goals that might feel really abstract and wrong, like what like tangible actions would that cause that you would feel is, um, yeah, uh, helpful to the world? Or is it mostly like an opportunity cost kind of thing for you? Fund reallocation. So you can uh, imagine, look, like just look at the 80,000 hours list of priorities and then flash that against, say, the list of priorities on uh, GiveWell or on uh, the Open Philanthropy and just look at what they prioritize, which is, say, uh, poverty uh, uh, alleviation and um, fighting disease and, and suffering for people alive right now. Uh, and just imagine every single one of those just gets replaced with Black Mirror Episode 1, Black Mirror Episode 2, Black Mirror Episode 3. Um, and we're talking, what, hundreds of millions of dollars that flow through uh, EA? Uh, and the the concrete harm is is simply that this, like, um, I like the uh, comparison to feminism um, uh, that, uh, Finn, that you raised, because he views as, like, second wave EA. Um, and second wave EA is... What are you saying about second wave? <laughs> um, no, I, I'm a huge fan of second wave uh, feminism, of course. Um, but this idea of, of uh, movements coming in waves is, is the thing which, which I'm highlighting. Um, and huge fan of second wave feminism, obviously. Um, less of a fan <laughs> of third wave feminism. Um, and you can see uh, the clash between a lot of the views held by third wave feminists um, as trying to undo a lot of the progress made by second wave feminists. Um, not to get into that conversation too much, but that is, I th- <laughs> yeah, I think that is kind of what's happening right here with long-termism. There's this new wave, which is um, uh, undoing everything which uh, McCaskill had built um, in the first wave. Uh, because like you said, if we expand our moral circle, now we are weighing the um, the well-being of people who are alive and suffering right now against the well-being of an infinite number of people mm-hmm. in the future. Um, and because these this style of argumentation is taken so seriously within this community, um, nothing will survive it. <laughs> uh, everything is going to get uh, uh, taken over by this. And so the, the worry that I have is precisely the uh, opposite love that I had for EA in the first place. I, I'm, I'm worried about losing all the things that EA has built. Luca, can I, can I understand your question as asking um, something slightly more subtle, which is even if the goals um, that long-termism aspires to, or like the objectives, so reducing um, some crazy sci-fi scenario uh, suffering, it, it could be the case that in trying to um, meet this objective, the actual day-to-day operations that you would do so would be good or would be the same as some other objective, like just trying to make the world um, happier and healthier, for example. Yeah, like um, I think a good way to kind of distinguish from this is, and I think it's, it's kind of something you said uh, in like one of your previous podcast episodes, there is like a scenario, right, where you take strong long-termism so seriously that you're just willing to cause any amount of harm um, you know, for the next thousand years in the hope that that will create some even larger astronomical value in the future, right? And then because time goes on in a thousand years time, you're willing to make the exact same trade off. And that just causes us like in a really 
bad spiral thing. And I think that that's like one thing that's like interesting, but I feel that's like very different to the argument of long-termism is just useless and these things are never going to materialize and it's just funding research that no one's going to read. And it's kind of like getting rid of that money, right? It's it's kind of, you might as well have, have burnt it and stuff. And that just feels like like two qualitatively different arguments um, that we can, we can have both have, right. But that was just what I was kind of interested in, in where Vaden stands on this. If, if you see this like long-termism in of itself, all right, ironically enough, like as an S risk where we become so obsessed with this thing that we kind of bring dystopia amongst ourselves as opposed to this is just like silly guys. Yeah. I was just kind of curious where, where you stand on that. Definitely the latter. Yeah. Uh, sorry, the former. Um, I think that it is not just, uh, silly academics writing publications that no one's going to read. I think it is um, a philosophy that's turning into an ideology, frankly. And I think that if it was uh, relegated to obscure academic journals, then I wouldn't really care. Um, but the fact that it is uh, starting to take over things that I do care about is um, why I think that, yes, it is like an S risk in and of itself. Uh, yeah, definitely. So I think it would be useful here just to draw a distinction Distinction to make sure we're not running together too many things. Yes, yeah, so Vaden, I take it you are reacting in everything you've said so far to what gets called strong long-termism, which does what it says on the tin. It's the most kind of radical working out of this kind of view. What are we distinguishing that from? Well, I think there is a more expansive and more accommodating kind of long-termism, which doesn't make these kind of absolute claims which you take it to be making. It's not saying let's go and steal money um, in like significant amounts from these other cause areas. What it is saying is, look, at the margin, we found this thing that seems to matter a great deal. And crucially, almost no one is, is making a targeted effort in this area. So that gives a case for like moving money right now into kind of exploring what we can do with respect to long-termism. But there's no claim there about like the absolute amounts. And that's that feels more sympathetic to me. And what I want to kind of highlight is this worry that um, you respond to the most extreme things people have said and then take that to stand for what everyone is saying under the guise of long-termism. I'll just read out like the the strong long-termism definition from the paper. So um, they do manage to complicate things. They have two versions. They have an axiological and a deontic version, which um, I think is is jargony and not hugely relevant. So the axiological version is just a claim about what is best to do. So axiology is just like talking about what things are good or bad. Um and here it is, they say, in a wide class of decision situations, the option that is ex-ante best is contained in a fairly small subject, subset of options whose ex-ante effects on the very long run future are best. Um, that's actually impressively vague, even for like their attempt at making the most like, precise definition. And that's deliberate. Um, but what it does say is that, well, the example they give is like, someone is thinking where to donate like, a bunch of money and they want to do the most good possible and they are saying right there the best thing to do would be to give it to some long-termist cause which is going to look very different from the kind of traditional ea cause areas so that's like a bold claim and yeah just to underline what i'm trying to like flag here is that 
you don't have to buy into that strong claim in order to be a long-termist. You might just think, hey, look, we found this thing called long-termism. It's really underrated right now. So well done us. Let's also care about this in addition to all these other things. And let's not worry about the absolute kind of proportion of efforts uh, right now, because frankly, we don't need to. May I ask, do you buy into the strong long-termist claim? And why or why not? Um, I'm agnostic because it's like... Corpo, a... just, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's, I, yeah, can I give a more interesting answer than that? Um, My hunch is that you find something deeply wrong with that claim, um, and hence your agnosticism. Um, and I'm, high, I'm trying to tease it out because yeah. I think we'll have common ground yeah. when you explain or explore, explore that. Here's what I find most worrying and what I think you are both absolutely right to raise. This is pretty much the first like serious shot at writing a piece of academic philosophy that is grappling with long-termism directly, or at least it's one of the very first few. Hmm. Now, one of the broader aims for people who are brought into long-termism is to make this more than just a kind of niche, wonky philosophical position. The goal is to make it, you know, like a vibrant movement that encompasses like non-academics. And, you know, the comparison goes back to other isms like feminism, where you don't have to read like analytic philosophy about feminism in order to call yourself a feminist. Now, if that's the goal, what is the best way of doing that? Probably not writing this like um, really controversial, <laughs> really easy to misunderstand piece as like the first kind of public facing thinking about it. I don't want to like guess the reasons why mm. um, Will and Hillary wrote it, but I don't think it's too unclear. Like that's the game you play in academia and certainly in philosophy is you you try writing um, about the most kind of extreme claims or the most out there claims that you can defend in good faith. And that's how you generate, you know, criticism, you get buzz and you get citations and when you're not like potentially at the start of a a significant moral movement, then that's like fair game. Um, but where you are, it's just, just just like such an unforced error. Um, so that's a worry, but that doesn't really answer your question because the question was, um, is it actually true? That's going to be, you know, like part of the conversation is trying to figure it out. Um, I think one thing to say is that it is, it's appropriate and actually probably, probably right to be uncertain about these things, um, to be like morally uncertain in general. That's like not a shameful place to be at all. <laughs> I have no place to say anything, especially kind of authoritative, right? But it seems like it could be true and maybe isn't. The, the, the way that I kind of like look at it, and this kind of like flips the table to, to you guys, but like when you hear about like the like very simple argument that future generations matter, at least to, to some degree. And it's probably likely that at the moment we're taking that far less seriously than we should be. And that probably has some conclusions for what EA should be doing and what we should be prioritizing. That feels really strong. And I'd be interested to, to hear what you guys think about that or like how deeply you disagree with that statement. And um, I definitely don't have like any background in philosophy. So I'm completely clueless as to that. But that makes like a lot of intuitive sense to me. And when I think about it, like on the margin, 
I don't think it's bad having people talking and exploring this idea, even if it's kind of just nudging the needle to something that's more sensible. I think it is important at some points to just think that EA is just in of itself still a very small community. You know, when you look at the whole globe and things like GiveWell have really taken off. Like I know lots of people who have heard about GiveWell and have never heard about effective altruism and haven't heard about long-termism. Thank you very bad wizards. Yeah, yeah, right. And <laughs> like, I, th- I think it is kind of amazing if you, you know, give EA some credit as well for that and like mm-hmm. promoting these things. I think that's really awesome. But then that kind of makes you think, okay, well, what is EA's job then? I don't think after, you know, they reach some critical mass, um, I think EA's job is to look at the next thing to kind of explore and to promote. And I think long-termism just isn't really taken seriously at all, just because it is such a new idea that I don't think it's it's bad having people explore that, even if um, we're not quite at something that that has like a great conclusion yet, or, or has something like like super reliable uh, as to like what kind of actions we take from it. I do think it's, it's still important. Nice. Yeah. So I think I agree with the point you're just making, but part of exploring a new idea is taking it to its extremes Mm. and then getting pushback, right? Which is exactly, I think, what we're trying to do is like criticize the idea. Um, I'd also just like to make a point with the strong long-termism because my reading of it is slightly different. My reading of the strong long-termism paper is that it's an inevitable conclusion from taking the ideas of long-termism seriously. So Vaden made, I think, what is an apt analogy with religion in the last episode, which I'm just going to ruthlessly paraphrase, um, which is, you know, if... So say you have this idea that there, like, might be an omniscient god in the sky. Then if you actually follow the logic of that, you get somewhere like fundamentalism. So once you adopt certain premises, you end up at certain conclusions. And I think that's exactly what's going on in the case of long termism. So as, as, as soon as you allow sort of this expected value reasoning to like sneak in the door every conversation, all your reasoning is now going to be swamped by the potential vastness of the future. And you have to end up at something like long-termism because once you like adopt this kind of reasoning, now you're weighing uh, finite well-being in the present against, you know, potentially infinite or near infinite well-being in the future. And so I near infinite me. (laughs) Yeah. Exceptionally, exceptionally large Google. Uh, Um, (laughs) Yeah. Although that's an important difference. Um, and just to like briefly react to that, I think it's worth pointing out that neither Will nor Hillary ever claim that they're like fully sold. They're kind of raising this as an interesting and plausible idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the reason they don't do that is because it's possible to be uncertain about something, even when the argument looks plausible on the face of it. Um, where does that uncertainty come in? Well, it can come in at the kind of normative level where like you've raised this problem with using the expected value framework in certain contexts, you think it breaks down and mm-hmm. that feels like something worth worrying about. And the uncertainty can also enter in mm-hmm. in the empirical questions because the strong long-termist conclusion only pops out once you actually consider how the world is. You need to be sure that there are things we can actually do to reliably influence how the long-run future goes. And that's another place where you might just think there are no ways we can improve the long-run future. And I think the state of play now, it's fair to say, is that maybe with the exception of certain kinds of existential risk, how we might possibly like reliably influence how things go like a thousand years from now. Mm. Who knows? Um, So it's, yeah, I think it's appropriate to be uncertain, even if you are like half sympathetic towards this. To respond to something that Luca had asked, uh, what what do we think about the argument that people in the long-term future 
their voices aren't represented and we need to do something now to, to help, right? Um, I think that's that's a totally reasonable argument. Um, and I could imagine, a say, a variation of long-termism, which says we care about the long-term future, but we also recognize we cannot make these sci-fi arguments because they're destructive. Uh, you can have both of these um, thoughts in your head simultaneously. And that could lead you to certain conclusions. Like, for example, we need to work on, say, reducing the likelihood of nuclear war, but we're not going to take this out of our budget that um, helps poverty alleviation. Because one thing that we know is that the only reason that we are here um, doing as well as we're doing in the 21st century is because previous generations had worked quite hard to improve the world in an incremental way to pass it on to their um, the, the following generation. And so most of the arguments that start the conversation around long-termism about wanting to ensure the long-run future goes well, I'm totally in favor of it. Um, it's just that they funnel in, to use your cone analogy, they funnel into <laughs> these, and we need to work on asterisks. Um, and so I, that's the only thing that I'm saying should not be done. Um, because you... So on the infinite or very large point, the the reason why the word infinite is useful is because for any big number that you give, I can give a bigger number. Um, there's no end to this game. There's no final number, which we can all agree is the biggest. Um, and so whatever move you make to try to encourage me to work on X risks, I can play the same move back and say, well, we should work on S risks, which is exactly what, what was happening. Um, so my main point of criticism is in this style of argument. Uh, and it, yeah, I think it's yeah. possible to excise that style of argument from the conversation of long-termism and not make it this zero-sum, either long-term future or short-term future, uh, and raise additional money to, say, prevent um, bioterrorism and nuclear uh, weapons. I'm totally in favor of all of that, of course. That's great. And, and AI safety as well, of course. But we shouldn't take it out of the budget to help the poor um, or help people who are alive right now. And that's the thing that I'm, I'm uh, highlighting. Yeah. This feels like progress to me. So something Luca mentioned earlier is that buying into the whole expected value Bayesian framework is neither necessary and actually nor sufficient um, to get long-termism. And there is a version of long-termism which just seems uncontroversially good. And that's the version you just talked about, Vaden. Like, you don't need lots of massive numbers and calculations. You just need to appreciate that the future could potentially be very large and full of really great valuable things and you need to recognize that like the world just does nothing or like next to nothing you know you hear the statistics like the biological weapons convention which is this kind of un body for enforcing prohibitions on certain kinds of experimentation with bioweapons it has the funding of like an average mcdonald's so at the margin let's just like do a little bit more and that seems right. That also seems like it deserves to be called long-termism. And if that is true, then am I hearing that you at least think that a kind of semi-skimmed version of long-termism is fine? We, we've always said that. Um, I think we, we say this re repeatedly, that uh, there's nothing wrong with, with wanting to um, uh, protect the future. Uh, we just have to realize that um, we're comparing the suffering of people who don't yet exist to people say in Nigeria or in uh, Botswana um, is just, it's an illegitimate move. We can't do that. Um, but there's nothing wrong with, with um, wanting to solve problems today 
precisely because we care about our descendants. And I, I disagree slightly that the world doesn't care about the long-term future. It does. It just doesn't use this word. Um, what do you think like the uh, founding fathers were thinking about when they set up the uh, United States Constitution? They're, they're considering how do we best ensure that a whole bunch of people can live harmoniously together in the long, the long term. Um, yeah, I phrased that. I phrased that pretty yeah. badly. I, I, I'd say on that, like, Vaden, I, I agree what you're saying, and I do think people care about the future, but people also care, right, about, like, people in Africa as well, right? <laughs> we send 0.8% of GDP, like as foreign aid, but that doesn't mean that's enough, right? Okay. I think the point of long-termism is is that we're not we we might care some amount about future generations, but we're not caring enough, and that means more resources need to go to those cause areas. And I think it is like it, it it's something we definitely need to be aware of is that those resources are going to come from somewhere, right? Mm. And it's it is a very tough question to ask, and I think it's also something that EA generally is. Yeah, I mean, this is like a generalization, but like, I think it is something that, that people in EA should think about more is that when you are spending money on anything, that is also money that's coming from somewhere. And, um, yeah, but like, like, even so, I think that the, the point of long-termism is that it's not enough, that we should be spending more resources and those are going to come from somewhere. And then I guess the question that, that you're worried about is that it comes at the harm of really important short-term well, interventions. Yeah. What, um, what, what would enough look like and how would you know when you're there? Yeah, I've I've got no clue. <laughs> because because but, it, it it will always be more, right? Um, that's my main point. Uh, it'll always just be more and more and more uh, because there is no way to know uh, what is a billion years from now is going to look like. Um, there's a there's a wall of of not uncertainty. I hate the use of this word uncertainty because uncertainty <laughs> and knowledge are different things. Uh, but there's a wall of um, unknowability that we cannot per, uh, uh, puncture through, right? Um, and so. There is a huge asymmetry in what we uh, can know about, say, um, reducing incidence of malaria via bed net distribution and reducing incidence of being locked in John Hamm's Alexa via what? Like, if this wasn't such a, like a, a real example, it would be ludicrous, but it's prioritized more highly than increasing access to pain relief uh, in developing countries on 80,000 hours. Um, and so on the strong long-termism point, like I just want to read a quote from 80,000 hours uh, website, um, which, so they give a list of uh, six things, which is at the very tail end of their list of priorities. So the six things are the following, mental health research, biomedical research, and other basic science, increasing access to pain relief in developing countries, other risks from climate change. So climate change has now slipped away from long-termist um, cause to something that they don't prioritize as much. Uh, reducing smoking in developing countries. Um, these are five things which they say we don't prioritize as highly because they seem less likely to substantiate substantially impact the very long-run future. Um, so I'm not the one making this equivalence. Uh, this is what is already happening. Um, and it's happening at the expense of human beings' lives. Uh, and it's because there is always going to be a call for more, um, more, 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 uh, because of the infinite value of the future, which, which one can always fall back on. So if we can excise this style of argumentation from the long-termist discussion and prevent important causes like preventing... Um, pain in developing countries, for Christ's sake. Uh, if we can, yeah. if we can prevent important causes from being just devoured by this style, then I'm completely fine with long-termism. But from what I can tell, long-termism is based on arguments from Nick Bostrom um, that are just all about this stuff. Uh, and it, it 
if, if we can come to a place where long-termism doesn't represent this kind of argument, I'm happy. I'm happy. And we can think and talk about the future for as long as we want. We can talk about the resources that should be allocated there as long as we just disallow this, this kind of reasoning. Yeah. No, okay. I'll, if I can like try and pick up on, on two points there. W- one is I agree that I'm super skeptical that we have any idea what's going to happen, like even in like a hundred years. I'm personally like super skeptical of that and super skeptical of any claims that rely on that. I think if you just look at like what the world was like a hundred or two hundred years ago and you put yourself in those shoes and you try to predict in any way what's going to happen, I think that should just be really humbling. Just to say like I'm with you on that. And for me, most long-termist causes that I believe in um, don't rely on that argument, right? You, you can make a case for building rigorous institutional design or fighting against corruption and those other like more broad terms that are justified by long-termism because they might come useful at some point, even without being specific, right, of what happens in 100 or 200 years time. Um, the other point, and I think this is like an important thing to kind of get into and might be like a bit more where we like tangibly disagree on things, is that I don't think equating future utility and current utility with zero discount means that there's like an infinite amount of value in the future. So um, the way that I kind of come from this is like with a little bit of like the economics uh, kind of take on this. And there you have something called uh, social time preferences, which kind of are composed of of three variables. So the first one is just the the pure time preference, so to speak, which is what we're kind of talking about with, okay, um, you know, in the very abstract sense, um, is one life in the future worth one life today? But then there's also other things you need to consider, right? Which is that generally we've seen the future getting richer and that should count for something, right? If, if we like to hope that things are going to get better, then surely there is a case to say that, okay, people are going to be much poorer today than in the future. So isn't there a case to help people more today? Um, and then the other thing is like a more wonky thing called like inequality aversion. But like basically what you get with this kind of growth rate to think about. And that's just like one thing that econs kind of like to focus on. You can bring in other things like uncertainty and stuff is that you can still make the case that future lives are worth just as much, but because of some external factors or assumptions, you can still get, you know, um, your practical discount rate to decrease in a way that it doesn't go to infinity, right? And governments have to make these decisions all the time. Every time the government thinks about whether they should build a nuclear power plant, which will have effects for a hundred years, or when they're debating about climate change and the social cost of carbon, they're already like making these assumptions and they're talking about these things. And you know, you don't get this like infinity problem, right? Governments are still able to come up with some decisions. You might criticize with those decisions and you might disagree with what things they kind of use, but you can still have a zero time preference and not assume there's like this infinity of value in the future that you're willing to make any sacrifices for. And I think that in some way makes me like a bit more confident about like taking a more extreme long-termist position and not have to worry about this 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 thing you you kind of described. Before jumping into the time preference issue, can I just pick up on your first point, Luca, which is you said that long-termism enables us to justify certain interventions like um, more robust institutional design and uh, work on democracy or something. Um, Mm. But I'm wondering if either of you have an example of a problem that is worked on only under the guise can only be worked on and justified by long-termist reasoning that can't be justified by other sorts of moral reasoning that is not sort of a sci-fi scenario. So 
Finn, I, I completely agree with you that like long-termism is, is this family of views, right? But the way I'm viewing it right now is like, it's a family of views all based on certain styles of reasoning. Um, and the conclusions, the valid conclusions that you get from this, like improving institutional decision-making or decreasing a nuclear armament, these are all problems mm-hmm. that can be worked on under the guise of like basically any other yeah. problem-solving mentality ever. Um, and then it's only sort of the lud- the ludicrous scenarios that um, you get because of the long-termism. And I think these are actually, once you start taking the reasoning very seriously, like I said before, sort of inevitable. Um, and so that's the problem I have with it. Not necessarily that exactly what it's justifying right now, but, you know, the kinds of reasonings that uh, can undergird a lot of these. The answer causes. is changing the QWERTY keyboard layout. It's more <laughs> sensible so that our descendants can enjoy it. Right. Um, and the serious answer is name an intervention that can only be justified with effective altruist reasoning in general and that isn't just obviously good before clearly um unconditional cash transfers to the extreme poor or handing out insecticide treated bed nets is like an obviously good thing so i would struggle to think of something to answer that question even in this kind of general ea case i wouldn't struggle at all um the uh deworming like this is how mccaskill cut his teeth right is that you can't just give to um, charities that make you feel good. You have to look at the data. Um, so yes. this yeah, is yeah. this is like to your point of like um, what could you justify with EA reasoning that you couldn't justify with other reasoning? Everything that EA does is all about the data, and this is what like why they were so powerful and important. I think effective altruism is also a family of views, and it is home to an awful lot of ideas. So it's difficult to say anything sweet, too sweeping about it, <laughs> but. One of the interesting things it does is tells you which interventions and cause areas to prioritize and what to do about that, rather than coming up with entirely new interventions, although it does do that occasionally. And I think something similar is going on in the case of long-termism. So the criticism that you raise is that, look, it's either trivial in that we already knew these things matter, like Mm -hmm. clearly we don't want nuclear war, so it'd be good to reduce that risk, or it's just false or like dangerous mm-hmm. if you're using the kind of expected value framework and you get these infinities and you start worrying about john han taking over the world <laughs> yeah um and i think there is some course to be steered between triviality and ridiculous falsehood where long-termism is saying something substantial and interesting not in terms of coming up with entirely new interventions although maybe there are some but in terms of getting a better grip on what kind of things we should be prioritizing now. And look, maybe one of these examples is like funding that biological weapons convention um, <laughs> as a start. Yeah, I, I think Finn hit it on, on the head there. Where like deworming happened right before the EA community existed. It's not something new. And I think mm. there's like a bit of conflation going on between like causes and choices, right? Everybody can care about a cause. You can, you know, as, as we said before, everybody cares about the future to some degree. Everybody cares about, uh, you know, people in in developing countries to some degree and animals to some degree. But the question is, like, how much weight do you put on these things, and how does that affect your choices? And in the same way that the choice that EA highlighted when it came to deworming is, do you spend on a very inefficient charity at home, or do you spend on a very efficient evidence based charity abroad? And there's a much stronger case we're making that through that EA reasoning. I think what long-termism is, is it takes a different choice, which is the question of, do we spend money today or do we uh, invest it in the future? And there the case then is, 
um, there are like very strong reasons to believe that you should be investing it. But it's it's that choice, right? That's that's the difference. Yeah, one thing actually, one thing to say here is that um, one can be critical of long termism, but still support some of the interventions that it brings about. So again, like I think a good parallel here is religiosity, um, because one can be supportive of, for example, the the pros- the the idea of like tithing in religious circles. Um, and so like giving to 10% of your, um, of your income to, to charity, for example. So one can think that that's a really good idea, but think that the reason that the religious site to do so are really bad ideas. So like this idea that there's like mm-hmm. an almighty creator in the sky who's going to punish you if you don't tithe is a bad reason to tithe, even though tithing itself might have positive consequences and be a good idea. And so it's just worth separating like the criticism of the, the style of reasoning yeah. Um, yeah. that long-termism usually use from what they're actually doing day to day. That's a really good example. So I do just, just like a really brief thing to say is like, you get a similar thing, right? With long-termism as well, where you have this like idea of keeping the world, or what I think it's called like the seven generations of sustainability. I think that's mm-hmm. like an idea from like um, a Native American tribe. And, you know, that I doubt they were like thinking about things and expected utility or <laughs> this kind of utilitarian framework, but they still kind of reached that same conclusion. Um, mm-hmm. of, of taking future generations much more seriously. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a really good example, Ben. I was just going to highlight a difference between the kinds of arguments that McCaskill and EA were making when arguing for, um, say, deworming programs over play pumps. Uh, that style of reasoning is scientific. Um, it's one that says we have our assumptions about the world, and then we have data, and we're going to collect data to challenge our assumptions because we could be wrong. Um, and that was why it was such a powerful um, argument against uh, argument in favor of, of reallocation, right? But there is no such um, argument that is possible to be made about the future one billion years from now. There's no real way to get any sort of data whatsoever. Um, and I'm okay with some, uh, like, I think at one point in the EA forum, I highlighted just. Um, that there is a methodological error being made equating expected values of the future and expected values of malaria bed nets. Because in one scenario, you have data, and in another scenario, you don't. Um, and I would be entirely okay with, say, um, people arguing about fund reallocation within the realm of long-termism. So do we want to put more money towards S-risks or towards preventing a global totalitarian uh, government regime from enslaving us all or to AI. Fine. We can say in this domain, we do not have data. And so we can talk about portfolio reallocation within that domain, but we cannot cross (laughs) compare uh, because we're not comparing apples to apples. Um, And so for Mm. short-term interventions where we have data, we can talk about reallocation in that domain as well. But it's this cross-contamination of expected value reasoning that allows people to say it's much more important to work to prevent John Hamm than it is to work to prevent um, people dying from malaria all day. Uh, and and this is because of faulty reasoning, and that's why both Ben and I are, are, are highlighting this is a problem. But if you if you, if people just return to the way like what we all learned from McCaskill in the first place, uh, reading his brilliant book about the importance of data, um, if we return to that and then add to it some concern for the long-term future, fully recognizing the limitations of our tools here, um, then I'm okay with it. Of course, we, we can talk about a lot of this stuff, but we just have to be super careful not to let it uh, distract from 
poverty uh, alleviation and, and helping people mm-hmm. who are suffering right now. Yeah. Let's let's plant the flag here, right? So it, it sounds like we've reached a kind of agreement that the things long-termists care about, the kind of sensible things, like reducing the risk of all-out nuclear war or bioweapons or something like this, these are sensible. And to the extent that long-termism is going to make those changes more likely to happen, then more power to it. Um, what you guys are worried about, Ben and Vaden, is the kind of reasoning or the, the most popular kind of reasoning that leads to those conclusions. Mm-hmm. And especially when you get so hung up on this kind of inappropriate use of what is just like a, a formal tool that you start actually taking seriously the kind of ridiculous extreme things it says when you like really push that style of reasoning. Um, and that's what you're worried about, especially when it becomes that style of reasoning becomes parasitic on the part of EA that was so important during its kind of earlier period, which mm-hmm. is this emphasis on actual empirical data, because you can't reason in the absence of... <laughs> beautiful synthesis of our views, or at least my view. Excellent job. That was great. I completely signed off on all of that. Beautifully said. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um so let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> here's why you're wrong. Apart. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Can I maybe pick up on on one thing just because it linked to like Vaden's example of deworming, which I think might be like a nice segue-ish into this debate about using evidence and stuff. And a lot of what you said, I'm I'm very sympathetic with. I think one important thing to note is that when we're talking about evidence and certainty and stuff. And a lot of the criticisms, rightful criticism, I think you raised about expected utility and um, like low probabilities and stuff is a more general critique that's not just relevant to long term. So you gave the example of deworming, right? Deworming is like very famous in development economics for actually being like a very hotly debated study thing. I think in Give World's Own methodology, right, they discount the effect of worming by 98 to like 99% just because of uncertainty about like how relevant the results are. So I guess like, in more particular, there was basically a study that showed that deworming was really good in this like one very specific circumstances, but a lot of very clever people have raised a lot of concerns about like if that like is actually externally valid to other situations as well, which had to do with a flooding and some other things where basically people earned a lot of money, but there wasn't really clear like why they did. Um, and there is like a big, yeah, it's, it's a whole like tangent to go down to. But like basically the, the point being that even with these short-term interventions, you can be really uncertain about if they actually work. But GiveWell also uses expected value calculus, right, to, to reach these decisions that have very low probabilities. I mean, deworming is like a very novel example here, but I think it's a point to, to raise that this is like a more more general critique. Um, I think of like using evidence and reasoning um, than just like long-termism, even though like long-termism might be the most extreme example. But but notice the ability in that very example for GiveWell to be refuted, right? So there's there's a process by which people can go collect more data and refute the reasoning GiveWell uses, right? This And this is how academia works. We publish papers, and individual papers not to be taken as God's word uh, on, the, on the topic, right? And so mm. m- more academics go out and do more studies, and over time, we start getting a clearer picture. And we there was one study in it, and then we course correct, 
um, and we're continually guessing at what the world looks like and continually refuting the the worst ideas and getting closer and closer to the truth right and so and the mechanism to do this in the givewell case is continually going back to the data looking at it uh more scrupulously going out and get, getting more data asking more questions criticizing the framework the assumptions etc cetera, etc cetera. the ability to do this in the long term case is very very limited right so you can mm. only criticize basically the use of expected gap value calculus but there's ve- very few ways in which you can once you adopt that style of reasoning, it's very difficult to start refuting some of the conclusions because like, what do you, what do you, are we just going to wait a hundred thousand years <laughs> and see how many f- future humans there were and then say, oh shit, we were wrong about that one. Like, you know? Um, and so, so I just want to highlight the, the differences in the ability to actually correct our errors, which is I think crucial. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a very valid point. There's a few things to say here, right? One is, in life, (laughs) occasionally, you are forced to make decisions where (laughs) there is no possibility of gathering evidence before the fact. There's no possibility of, you know, correcting course and falsifying your guesses. Mm -hmm. Um, But not making a call and not doing anything about whatever the situation you face is constitutes a decision as well. And I'm not suggesting you're saying this, but a claim to the effect that we should only ever do things when it's possible to gather like good empirical evidence about whether this is a good thing to do that's not gonna gonna work and sometimes you have to rely on other things like like arguments and reasons as well as data so maybe that's the first thing to say there this is the reason why i i tried to frame it as a methodological error that could be rectified um it's about this cross comparison thing i recognize that uh say uh working to um, uh, start thinking about what governance structures will have to be on Mars when we populate Mars is a useful conversation. I'm in favor of of, of that for sure. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that one can only think about that which we have immediate data. That would be um, self-refuting because I'm super interested in philosophy and in philosophy you typically don't have data to, to, to uh, adjudicate. So totally. Um, again, it's not about saying we cannot think about <laughs> the long-term future. Um, I'm all in favor of science fiction just as a form of expression and of idea generation. It's just we can't then compare to um, situations where we have data because these are very different phenomena. Um, And especially we can't compare using the same word like probability uh, because the word probability means very different things to different people, but they don't realize that. (laughs) They don't realize that when you talk about Toby Ord's probability, he's just talking about a made-up number. And when you talk about the probability associated with bed nets, um, or, or take maybe a clearer example, the probability associated with AI takeover compared to the probability associated with a volcanic eruption. One comes from frequencies, which you can count, and the other comes from just belief states, which we all know are completely subject to, to bias of various different forms. So um, agree that we can't just exclude all forms of reasoning without data. It's just we have to be careful about this cross comparison. Yeah, no, I, I I'd agree with that. I think one thing to maybe add there as well is that right when we're talking about I guess like what we have evidence and stuff on, um, we also need to be aware even in like those interventions like deworming or other things about like some of the long term effects that it might have. Right, because at the moment we're kind of very implicitly assuming that the RCT result is what we get and like nothing happens thereafter, right? But there are also, you know, you, you can imagine a scenario, right? Where like in uh, 50 or 60 years, 
that kind of has knock-on effects or like, like, I don't know, it might have positive long-term effects that we're not aware of and we're not factoring in and actually giving malaria nets and deworming is even more valuable because it boosts GDP in some way or, you know, it lets, um, uh, well, I forget like the, the name for it, but like this Einstein example, right? Where you just have to think about like all these smart people, um, you know, who have ever lived in the world who just died of malaria and they were never the, given the chance, right, to contribute to. I think, you know, these are also things that just feel really hard to, to quantify, and like have evidence for in any way, but still feel like they should f- inform our decision making, right? To to some degree. Was 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 that a long termist case for short term intervention? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I'm kind of exploring it, right? But yeah. I think there is like a case to to be made there to just like really consider the long term effects as well. Yeah, I just I want to take a second to just echo Vaden's point, which is a point um, that I think I regret not making in the bla- our last two episodes about long termism, um, which I think it's. So I think the position I'm espousing is easily conflated with empiricism, which I think, Finn, you were rightly pointing out, which is to say we can't only act when we have data. And I completely agree. So um, and this is where like the role of a good theory and a good explanation comes in in science. Right. So we have to act uh, in accordance with like the best theory uh, of something. So um, we had good reason to adopt like uh, relativity, for example, which predicted black holes. And therefore, I think we should act in accordance that that the universe like has black holes before we like gather th- uh, data about it. And this has been super prevalent, actually, in the COVID case, which someone like Rob Wiblin has been very um, good at pointing out, which is like the inability for a lot of people to uh, to like adopt certain uh, vaccines and approve certain vaccines under the guise of like we don't have enough data. Um, but this is like a misunderstanding of how the scientific process actually works. So like data use is is used to discriminate between different theories um, and viewing and viewing us only able to act when we have good enough data is uh, like a misunderstanding of what a theory does in the first place. Um, and so I, I do want to separate. Uh, so I'm not making the empiricist claim that we can only act when we have data. But what I am saying is that when your reasoning uh, lies on probabilities, um, they these there are different sort of rules at play, right? So if if you're gonna if you're gonna start comparing, like Vaden said, um, RC, the results of RCTs and saying in expectation we expect this many lives to be saved based on the data and the, the assumptions we've made. This is very different than saying the probability of AI takeover is 30% in the next decade or something, because there's just completely different processes at work for how we get these numbers. Um, I think these numbers, honestly, I think we should start writing these numbers differently. Like one of them we should write with like a little <laughs> tilde over them or something, because these it's very confusing that we're using the same symbols on paper, but these are like completely different concepts. And so one, we should just like write in red pen or something. Mm-hmm. And so maybe uh, that might have been a little... Uh, hard to follow or garbled on my part but i so i'm not saying that we can only act when we have data but i am saying in the in the particular case of probability we have to be very clear that a lot of these numbers are being generated by completely different processes one of them being entirely subjective um and one of them being actually objective and coming from data and therefore able to be corrected (laughs) so that's true and i feel like this is just worth digging into um a lot further because it feels like a crux so what do we say here Hmm. one point to raise insofar as there is an important difference between subjective probabilities and more objective or so-called frequential probabilities, it's not obviously the case that we should take one more seriously than the other, or we should act only on the basis of one. Um, Sometimes subjective probabilities matter a great deal. 
For instance, we need to have some guess about how a global pandemic will pan out, but we haven't experienced anything like that before. So we don't have any kind of uh, frequencies to base our guesses on, but you need to make a call either way. And, you know, you face lots of choices like that. So it's not like a, it's not obviously the case that we should ignore or take less seriously um, probabilities which aren't strictly derived from really good evidence. That was a great example, by the way. When you're done, we should we should just zone in on the on the pandemic example. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, so that'd be great. Right, right. So yeah, let's just like spell out what we are disagreeing about, which is um, there are different views of what probabilities are. And some people think you should just treat all probabilities the same. And some people think there are different kinds. So on one hand, there is a view of probability, which is you, you have a number between zero and one. And where it's appropriate to use, it's telling you about how the world is in a certain way. If I said that um, this coin I have, I'm going to flip it and the chance it'll land heads is 0.5. You could translate what I'm saying there as being something like, in the limiting case, if I flipped it you know, a gazillion times, 50% of those times it's going to land heads, right? So it's a kind of fact about its propensity or the kind of frequency that it comes up, either has come up in the past or will come up in the future. There are like different ways to catch it out. But in any case, it's like a fact about the world. And then you have another camp of interpretations um, about what probabilities say. And the idea there is that probabilities don't immediately tell you about the world. Probabilities describe instead a fact about the mind of the person using them. So there's something like a degree of belief or strength of belief. Um, so that's like a subjective interpretation of probability. And when you combine it with ideas about how to update those probabilities on new evidence, then you can call yourself uh, a Bayesian. This is like a Bayesian uh, like interpretation of probability. <laughs> so those are like what, like kind of two rough camps and um, uh, not to, put too fine a point in it but i think you hate bayesians from the <laughs> impression I got. Um, uh, so i'm I, yeah i don't feel like qualified to say anything kind of technically accurate but i also feel tempted to stick up for the bayesian side of this argument and maybe the first thing to say and i'll like shut up soon but one thing to say if you're a bayesian you are allowed to have subjective probabilities about anything, including those things which also obviously kind of fit the objective story. So if I flip my coin 100 times and it comes up heads 50 times, I'm allowed to have a subjective credence that the next flip will come up heads with a 50% chance. So in a sense, Bayesian epistemology, it starts with real, all the obvious stuff that an objective interpretation of probability will be first to point out and extends it to places where someone who's more sympathetic to that objective interpretation will be scared to go. It's worth thinking of it as a kind of, yeah, a way of extending notions of probability beyond the most obvious applications. So there's a continuity there rather than a disjoint between you know, RCT probabilities and then like sci-fi probabilities. Um, so yeah, that's the first point to make. Excellent. So um, 
on the question of do I hate Bayesians? Do we hate Bayesian? No, I am a Bayesian. My entire research career is basically in Bayesian methods. And this is my sole public uh, publication output when it comes to machine learning is publishing Bayesian methods. And so, no, I'm 100% a Bayesian. Um, I'm not a Bayesian epistemologist, though. Um, that's where the big distinction lies. Um, because I fully recognize the power of Bayesian methods in statistical reasoning. Oh, yeah. No one's denying Bayes' rule, right? Just to like... Get that out of the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I was accused of somehow on the EA <laughs> forum. <laughs> but it's also a um, statistical methodology, which is incredibly powerful and makes use of subjective um, knowledge. So I'm, I'm not even, a pro- uh, I don't have a problem with um, infusing subjective priors into our uh, data analysis. That's also completely great. Um, it's just what happens when you take out the data entirely, you're left with Bayesian epistemology um, as contrasted against Bayesian statistics. Um, so like when it comes to, when you said it's not necessarily clear which one is better, a good uh, between subjective estimates of probability or objective estimates of probability. Um, here's a tiny little thought experiment. Imagine you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, you have uh, brain cancer and they say the probability of you living past your 30s is 90%. Then he says that comes from looking at 100,000 people who have brain cancers exactly like yours. Um, you're going to feel one way. But imagine he says, that's just what I believe. That's just a belief of mine. I haven't looked at the data. I just, this is a hunch. It's a gut feeling that with your style of cancer, yeah, I believe you're going to live past 30. Um, which one would you prefer? I would argue you'd prefer the one that's based on data, right? Um, it's not necessarily about if the data... I don't really understand what you're trying to get at there. Uh, my, what I'm trying to get at is that um, probabilities derived from data are superior to probabilities derived purely from belief. Of course they are. But who, who's saying that? Did you not say earlier? We, I think it was that it's not necessarily clear which one is better, um, is I think the phrase that you used uh, when it comes to subjective okay, so, probability or objective probability. Yeah. And so... so yeah. I think that's on me for not being clear enough about the two views we're comparing. So I'll try again. An objective interpretation of probability just takes those numbers between zero and one to be saying something about the world, um, an objective fact about frequencies or propensities, right? The subjective family of interpretations of probability take those numbers to be saying something about something inside my head, right? About a strength of a belief. But clearly, you're allowed to base your beliefs on evidence. And in cases where you can, you obviously should. In fact, you should, you know, use all the kind of available evidence and data that you can. So it's a boring philosophical distinction, which ah. doesn't matter most of the time, rather than a distinction about where you should draw your evidence from or what sources of data are best, um, something like that. I would say it matters a huge amount when you're given a probability and you don't know uh, from which philosophical school it was uh, derived. So in Ord's book, mm. um, he gives probabilities associated with volcanic eruption, probabilities associated with nukes, uh, probabilities associated with... Um, 
uh, asteroid collisions. These are again, like going to your doctor who's looked at 100,000 different examples of asteroid collisions. <laughs> um, and then he uh, gives a probability associated with AI takeover. Um, and now he switched, right? He switched to subjective belief probability. Uh, there's no data. You can't possibly calculate um, the probability of AI takeover in this fashion. Um, and that's where it matters. It matters a lot because this distinction is um, subsumed in the word uh, subjective. And so Ord is very upfront. He's like, I'm using subjective estimates here. Um, but I would claim that the readers don't realize what exactly is happening. Uh, it's just what that means when you just add the adjective subjective in front of it. Uh, things change entirely. Um, and just think about what uh, this would be like in the domain of, of health and medicine. If doctors just switched in a cavalier way between talking about um, incidents of breast cancer, what derived from data, and just beliefs and gut feelings, also using the same word probability, and then they just start ranking things based on this. this it matters a lot. It's not just a philosophical, empty discussion, because it, it is the, the fuel which allows people to um, mix uh, probabilities associated mm. with data with probabilities associated with nothing, just belief states. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So where there is a practical difference, it's that um, fans of this objective uh, class of interpretations of probability are going to balk at putting numbers on things where there isn't a strong enough body of evidence, whereas fans of a more kind of Bayesian approach are going to just like come up with a guess drawing on similar examples from the past and mushing together uh, more various <laughs> sources and reasons. Um, and you're saying that when that's not made clear, that you're drawing your number from uh, second-rate sources, that can be misleading. Um, I think it's unfair in the... Toby Ord example, I think he's fairly upfront that these are, I mean, most people know what subjective means, right? And he also says, look, these could be an order of three wrong either way, but it would be um, unfair to the reader or maybe kind of like patronizing to the reader not to just like say my guesses about how likely these things are because I've just written an entire book and you're probably wondering what they are. So you can you you know you should be trusted to to like understand where where these things are coming from. Maybe people don't understand them, but I I would expect most people do. Just one tiny point, and then just to finish, <laughs> a very super point, um, super small point, which is that there's a third option available, right? Um, and th the third option is the one which Vaslav Smil took in his book, uh, Global Catastrophes and Trends, which is to just not use subjective probabilities. Uh, at all. Um, just rely on arguments in that case and use probabilities to summarize uh, data. But it's not a choice of uh, either be honest about subjective probabilities or hide them. The third option is don't use them. Vayne, everything you just said there is is really great. And I think I might actually be be with you there more more than with with Finn. Wow, um, Dude, on, we're looking on, for a third host. Point point podcast, <laughs> yeah. This idea has one host. <laughs> well, one thing I was going to bring up, and I'm again like I think it maybe comes to like a broader point of like how you message things and how you, especially right you communicate science and statistics mm -hmm. with like the general public. Finn, where where you said um, like you shouldn't patronize with the reader. I think probably in the in the Toby Ord book that does make sense. 
But he does also like add the numbers together, right? To give like one really nice headline figure, which is like one in mm-hmm. six, right? In the century. Mm-hmm. And that really literally exactly. just adds together the more objective probabilities or like mm-hmm. frequentist stuff of uh, asteroids with the subjective kind of AI thing to give one really nice figure, which, you know, is the first thing that comes up with if you're not going to read the book, right? You're still going to see the, <laughs> the one in six number. So that's like where I think I'd really agree with Vaden's point that I think that is actually something to consider more seriously, especially when these things build up on each other, right? And you then cite this in your next literature review and so on. I can definitely see how that kind of becomes a bit of a Ponzi scheme, right? Beautiful Where word. It's, it's all kind yeah. of building onto yes. each other. Also important to note that neither Ezra Klein or Sam Harris picked up on the yeah. sub- subjective versus objective difference, right? He was on both of their podcasts and both of them were just using this number, one out of six, as mm. if the, the the different sources being fed into this function that gave the output were the same. Mm. And so, you know, these are two very yeah, smart people yeah. who both didn't mention it. And maybe they realized there was a difference, but they didn't say it. And so people who now haven't read the book, who are listening to their podcasts, which are in the millions, presumably, have this <laughs> walking around with this number of one out of six in their head, which is just like Toby Ord's completely subjective belief. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, no, that's, that's a really good point. I think you know, that is actually a fair point. Maybe there's a worry about messaging. First thing to say there is that that is separable from the more fundamental question of whether subjective probabilities are ever reasonable to talk about and come up with in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. Another point there is in that specific example, maybe it's not such a bad thing that if people are going to take anything from that book, then that kind of headline figure, it gets people interested and maybe that's not such a bad thing. And then they learn more if they are interested and find out that it's okay it's like less clear it could actually be more it could be less um imagine um, but it's a hook choose choose your least favorite cause area and imagine they did it if they did it honestly then i I would appreciate their honest guess um if it's like i'm trying to sell this thing by coming up with the highest number that i can justify then that would be bad but it'd be bad not because they are using a subjective uh, interpretation of probability but because they're being dishonest which is just mm. bad it's anyway. just a, a super tiny point of clarification which i think is important is that neither ben nor myself are accusing or or anyone of being dishonest right um yes, yeah, yeah, sure. it, yeah, it's, yeah it's just yeah yeah it's just i i think that um, it is a ponzi schemes so, uh, another philosopher um referred to it as a scandal and i think that that is closer to the mark, which is that everyone is using the word probability and not realizing that very different things are going on. And so I think it's it's actually a public confusion, which even people as brilliant as as uh, Ord and uh, Sam Harrison and, and Ezra Klein um, uh, uh, haven't recognized. Uh, so so it, it's, it's, a, it's a giant mistake, not a intentional act of um, uh, propaganda or, or what have you. So just to clarify that, yeah. Yeah, and like it's it's a general science is, yeah. right problem as well. I, I can point to like other examples right where it just seems more more just bigger than that. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask Vaden and Ben then. So um, if you say that there's no there's this third way right of like not using um, subjective probabilities at all, um, but you also earlier said right that you're like generally sympathetic to things like AI safety. 
uh, or you know, extinction risks to to some degree, even if it's not these more like sci-fi esque risk kind of things. How do you justify that? Then is is this like a question of like going back to a theory or using general intuitions or so? Because you still have to make right like some kind of trade off. Like, ha- what kind of alternate decision making kind of process would would you propose then? I'm actually not sympathetic to AI risk. Okay, right. To, <laughs> Sorry for assuming. Yeah, yeah, we can maybe argue about that later. <laughs> I think um, it's actually useful to return to Finn's thought experiment here about nuclear war. So um, the first thing I'll say is that I'm I'm actually not going to say that people shouldn't use subjective probabilities. Like if they want to mm-hmm. organize their own thoughts in specific ways and find it useful to generate arguments and sort out their own personal priorities by like assigning numbers to things, I don't care. And actually, this is one of the biggest problems I have with like the less wrong style of Bayesianism is that it calls people irrational for not abiding by the subjective view of probability and like for me i i don't actually care how you come up with arguments how you start prioritizing things as long as you're open to like argumentation and criticism from other people so anyway i want to separate the the criticism of subjective probabilities and the comparison Mm. of subjective and objective probabilities to just like using them so if you want to use them to convince yourself of things or or argue that's fine um but we just have to recognize where they're coming from and like not compare them willy-nilly with objective probabilities um but in the in the particular case of like nuclear war, um, so I think w- one thing you're smuggling in there is like, why do you need beliefs that obey the rules of probability? Like, wh- what's the axiom of human rationality that says we must have a belief about the probability of nuclear war in the future, and that thing has to be a number between zero and one, right? So this is like a huge assumption being made in this world of Bayesian epistemology that is like nowhere argued for. Um, but it's just like assumed like we you know we must um, have beliefs that conform mathematically in these specific ways yeah i mean one one point there is it's getting a little in the like prudential self-interested case you can just show that if you if you violate like the rules of updating on probability according to bayesianism then you just end up being dutch booked yeah you get kind of money pumped and whatever you lose out over the long run yeah in a casino if you're a casino and you um uh, don't uh, use the rules of probability when um, designing your games, then you're going to consistently make uh, loss. You're going to lose money, right? So um, the amount that roulette pays out for certain um, uh, rolls of the, of the, the wheel, that's not arbitrary. And if you deviate from say half on red, half on black, and it's like three quarters uh, payout, three fourths on red and one quarter on black, then you're going to lose money. But um, so then you could say that as a casino owner, your subjective probability needs to match what the objective case is. Otherwise you're going to make decisions for your casino, which will make it go under. Um, But this is a highly contrived example. And it's one that works only because we know how to set up um, chaotic systems, which actually produce objective randomness in the world. Um, so in situations where we know there is a source of true randomness, such as pachinko machines or roulette, um, in those limited cases, it makes sense to align your subjective credence to the objective um, probability. But this is the rare case. Um, this is not the kind of reasoning that we can then uh, adopt when reasoning about the future. We actually know, using explanatory theories, what physical systems produce actual randomness. And this is what 
computer programmers have to think about when they use random number generators, because it's actually really hard to produce random number generators that actually statistically make random um, random events. Uh, so we know where randomness comes from in nature, and these are the only places where you can talk sensibly about mapping subjective credences onto the objective world. But these are um, chaotic and complex systems, as well as uh, uh, like Brownian motion and stuff. But But again, this is limited cases. Maybe a point to raise here is um, the track record of betting markets and prediction platforms where you are betting on all sorts of things which do not meet the Vaden criteria for randomness, like <laughs> political like elections and how the pandemic is going to turn out and the most like Vaden triggering of them all are like, will... <laughs> um, triggering. I love it. Yeah, will the like Riemann conjecture be proved either way? Like in the next ten years, like this is not random, um, but people place numerical probabilities on them. Um, what's interesting is that um, once you make enough of these guesses, you can see if you're well calibrated or not. So where you've made a guess that something will turn out to happen with like a twenty percent probability, did it? end up happening 20% of the time once you've made enough of those bets. Um, and once you rack up that kind of track record, there it feels like you can be said to be either right or wrong, well calibrated or not, with respect to your guesses, even though those guesses were about like all kinds of things which aren't anything like digits of pi or casino spins. Tiny thing... Uh, listeners can um, go on the Wikipedia page for randomness, and then there's like a subsection sources of randomness in nature, and uh, that's the criterion that I'm using. It's not Vaden's Vaden's criterion. It's it's where science uh, like actually <laughs> yeah. knows um, where, where randomness uh, occurs. Um, on the super forecaster thing, yeah, we uh, talked about this a bunch with Mauricio, um, and what just one tiny point to to make is that. Uh, a well-calibrated forecaster is allowed to say 0.5 when they don't know stuff. So you could have a forecaster, uh, but, but, of course. um, but when you say I have a subjective credence of 0.5, you are not saying that if we ran the world a thousand times, I'm pretty confident it's going to happen 500 times. You're saying I have no idea how many times it's going to happen, but my, my degree of belief that it will happen is about 0.5. No, so, so my only point is that quote, well-calibrated forecasters, it's it's not like a, a fount of wisdom about the future. Um, it is just people yeah. either say, like if you split the world into that which I'm super certain about, that say Joe Biden will still be president in two years, not four years, um, and things that I'm completely uncertain about that I just don't know, like uh, what is going to happen mm. in 100 years from now. And you just ask me questions that are just that which I'm certain about or that which I'm uncertain about. It's like, I know nothing about. Then that could be a perfectly well-calibrated forecaster. Um, because like, the, like yeah. we're not getting anything for free And that's a crucial here. point. We, um, so yeah, that's my Absolutely. Point. So yeah, yeah. Gigo, right? Like garbage in, mm. garbage out. You cannot learn anything which you didn't already know by putting numbers and stuff. Great. Oh, that's, um, I love that. Good. And yeah. oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but there's something there's something on the kind of grammatical surface of saying something is this value in expectation or like the probability is such and such where what you mean is my kind of degree of belief that it'll happen is this. And that's true as far as it goes. Like it can be misleading maybe if you don't know what these people are talking about that they actually know something about 
how many times these things would turn out if you like ran the world a thousand times. But that's only like a surface level mistake. No one's claiming to know anything more by putting these numbers on stuff than they knew before, right? Well, the surface level mistake goes pretty deep because people argue in favor of subjective views of probability by counting the frequency of uh, super forecasters, right? Um, and, and the frequency of their uh, accurate or inaccurate predictions. Um, so there's not a clear delineation of frequentist methods versus subjective methods. It all gets conflated. And out the other end comes just numbers which people don't know their, uh, how, how they were derived. And so... Um, we should maybe get back to the long-termist subject, but this, like, it's just, it's just an interesting <laughs> yeah, irony come. that um, the one of the best arguments for Bayesian credences is through yeah. frequencies. I mean, to tie that into the long-termism thing is, like, one of the biggest, I think possibly the only argument for AGI being a big danger is just citing the credences, quote-unquote, of experts, right? And saying, like, they believe that within 50 years, there's going to be AGI that does so-and-so, um, and we need to take this shit seriously because look at the look at these numbers! My God, right? So there's no, like, one layer deeper of, like, let's yeah. look at the arguments. Um, and I just, yeah, so I have a thought experiment for you both. Like, say you have two forecasters, um, for the audience, forecaster is just someone who's, like, predicting things about the future, uh, and one of them has a track record of, like, 90% correct, right? These are, f this guy's a fucking super, or she is a super forecaster, like, none other, right? And one of them sucks, like, <laughs> point two, like, worse than chance, it's just terrible. <laughs> um, and, and they're both telling you their guess at, like, whether AGI is going to take over the world in the next hundred years. Um, would you actually believe would you give more weight to the opinion of the super forecaster with like the not the, with their track record um or would you actually just forget the numbers and examine their arguments <laughs> i mean this is like probably the the silliest answer but like if the uh, the second forecaster is so bad right that it like negatively correlates in some way <laughs> then that could be just like do the opposite of whatever they say way, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah do the opposite yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, I, th I feel like you mentioned this in another podcast, but you, I remember you raised a really great point, which doesn't, as far as I can tell, undermine anything deep about like Bayesian epistemology, but it's a mistake people make, which is if you just like hand out a survey to 100 AI experts asking these like unanswerable questions about when general artificial intelligence will arrive, and mm -hmm. like everyone who gets that survey, they're like, I don't have a fucking idea, but I have to put a number because, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, getting yeah. like yeah. paid or whatever. it's a so survey. I'll just yeah, put yeah. like off the top of my head. And yeah. then like those answers come back and you see that one person thinks that AGI will arrive by 2050. And the next person thinks it'll arrive by 2045. And you think, hey, these are all clustering around the same point. Now that 100 people have said it'll arrive by this point, we should be way more confident that it will than compared to just asking one person um, because we can aggregate their beliefs and come up with this like even stronger, um, mm. more confident belief. <laughs> Look at the posterior. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. And that's often inappropriate and it's going to give you a like way false sense of confidence where just everyone is... Um, equally clueless and you can't turn collective yeah. cluelessness into a kind of combined confidence killer illiterate. I, I think you've just uh undermined uh one paper that bostrom and uh ord co-wrote because i think nick bostrom literally did that 
and published a paper on it with uh, uh, Toby Ord. And so I'm glad that to hear you say that because it is a ridiculous methodology, but it is one which um, is published by Ord and Bostrom. Yeah, yeah I mean, so it depends on um, how independent you think those guesses are, right? So if you think they're all drawing on like totally independent reasons and sources of evidence, then you should think that they combined something stronger um and maybe that i haven't i don't really know what you're talking about um but yeah no maybe that that is a mistake you can make and like a slightly more mundane example is um you get some howlers especially in like pop science writing is howlers some english word or what is like that? an yeah, egregious yeah. error <laughs> yeah. like a yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah some yeah. egregious errors oh, I see. um okay so like <laughs> um, i've never said it. it as well I've tr- um so, you, so people will come up with like a pop side claim like um eating ginger like makes you happier whatever and they'll look at the literature Seems reasonable and they'll see 10 published papers and they all have positive results and their p-values are all obviously nice and low mm. so you think my god 10 papers you know that means the chance that that eating ginger doesn't make you happy is just like rock bottom right because how could they all come to that conclusion um and that's a case i think where a bayesian style approach starts to look quite attractive because you can say things like well, how, how likely do i think this is before i looked at these papers how many papers are going to get find a null results and get rejected and you start thinking about things like publication bias um which don't show up in just the p values you get at the end of that process and that's a case where that's pretty sensible i'm not suggesting you think it's not but it is a nice example of a kind of subjective style approach working quite well no i just yeah to dive into that example i mean what is the end process of that reasoning look like so for me i'd say um well there's all these confirmatory papers it doesn't you know there's the file drawer effect the well-known file drawer effect in social sciences we don't know how many papers that you know tried to run the study and found negative results um should my conclusion here to be to like put a number on my prior belief update it with all the confirmations then make a guess at how many like disconfirmatory cases are hiding in someone's file drawer and then have like a number 0.16 at the end of the day or is it just to be like pretty skeptical of the claim um, and, you know, why do I have to put a number on it? So there's this like extra step I find that's often taken in like the Bayesian world where, yes, you're right. Like Bayesian style reasoning in terms of like um, updating, quote unquote, whatever language you want to use with new evidence coming in. Of course, we're in favor of that. That's what criticism and evidence are for, right? To help us like uh, shape how we think about the worlds and slowly converge to truth. But this extra step of going from uh well you know i think something's likely or unlikely or like i'm pretty skeptical of it or like you know i need more arguments before i make up my mind to like well i have this probability that's you know 0.33 um that's the extra step where i just like it seems so silly to you know try and get that um that that and then but when it happens is like once we've made that step then we have a number um and numbers are great because we can compare that number with other numbers um and then we get into this dangerous territory of like we started out our reasoning process saying yes of course all this is highly subjective da, da, da. i'm just gonna put a number on it but then we forget <laughs> a year later we find this like paper and we have this number and we're like holy shit 33 percent that ginger increases life expectancy or whatever um you know i mean deworming only has like a 10 percent <laughs> chance of working so we better just give everyone ginger you know and just forget that um forget that this number was like you know kind of conjured it's just the sources are not the same um and so okay, anyway but that's nothing yeah. wrong with the 
underlying philosophical view that motivates putting numbers on things you're uncertain about. That's a problem with people misunderstanding it, which is separate, right? Like, yeah, no, I think, I mean, I agree. Like I said earlier, I don't have, pro- if someone really wants to go through the trouble of like putting a number on every one of their beliefs, yeah. then that's fine. I'm just, as soon as we start comparing those numbers with like other numbers derived from like more, um, from better sources of information, that's what I have a problem with. And I think that that kind of, re- I think it's rare, I guess, in practice that the Bayesian withholds comparing completely subjective beliefs with like other kinds of numbers. Yeah, I mean, the problem can't be comparing slightly uncertain things with fully certain things. Like, maybe you think one pill improves our sleep quality by, like, 2%, and we just know that absolutely for sure for everyone. And then another pill, for some people it's been, like, 3%, and some people it's been 1%. Um, You can compare those things. Or maybe you're, like, not sure how effective the third pill is, because you haven't run enough studies, and, and it's appropriate to come up with, like, guesses there and compare them. And then you could just draw this continuum between those cases where you have a little bit of uncertainty and you're kind of okay with that to cases where there's a lot more uncertainty. And it's not clear that there is a kind of shining line where you just like can't go any further. Well, I'd say the shining line is just probabilities derived from data should be compared with probabilities derived from data. And probabilities not derived from data should not be compared with probabilities not derived. Like just the data is the shining line. Um Notice I say data, I don't say Bayesian versus frequentist interpretation because you have all sorts of excellent uh, Bayesian statistics, which is about doing exactly what you are, are, are highlighting. But what is data, right? Measurements of the world. Um, so, But what's a measurement of the world? <laughs> this is the, the, the philosopher and Finn coming out. Like yeah. every belief I have comes from some kind of you observation, right? Counting bed nets. <laughs> yeah. um, what is like, data? We, we may be getting into semantics, but... Uh, if you could put it in an Excel table, that would be what I'm referring to as data. Yeah, like if, if you could perform statistical analyses on it, um, that's what I mean. Uh, it, I'm not being, using an exotic word here. I'm just meaning yeah, yeah, yeah. counting uh, hospitalizations due to COVID, counting um, malaria bed net distribution and contrasting that against um, reports of malaria. This is this is what GiveWell is so um, great at, at doing. So whatever GiveWell does is what I'm talking about when I say data. Um, I'm, I'm not using anything exotic. Uh, well, well, exotic one thing I'm like yeah. a little bit concerned about, and just like a genuine question, I haven't really thought much about this, is that I definitely see what you're saying, Vaden, that there's lots of scenarios where this conflation is really problematic and can lead to really bad outcomes. But I can just also see a lot of scenarios where all you have, right, is one subjective probability for one thing and a more like evidence-based probability for another thing. And you still have to make some sort of decision. Like I just, I'm kind of struggling a bit in like making this like more, more action term, I, I, I guess. And like, um, how, how do you just end up making decisions then? Right. Like, like in the, in the real world. Based on theories and criticism. So it's not the case that all you have is a subjective, um, probability estimate. You also have, uh, explanations about how the world works, arguments that um, are trying to point out flaws in in those uh, explanations. And you make decisions in the real world by um, the method of conjecture and refutation. You you take a guess about what decision is going to best um, lead to positive outcomes. Uh, If you don't have data, then all you can do is try to get your friend's and peers and colleagues to criticize it. And Have you ever read someone called Cole Popper? I think you'd really enjoy it. Oh, what can I say? Um, I think I'm, I'm fairly repetitive on this point by now, but yeah. I just have to keep repeating myself because the same questions keep 
reoccurring and so um yeah, yeah. That, no that's no that's that's fair and i'm definitely not yeah. saying that's like the wrong approach to take i think it was more just like a thing for me and like kind of clearing it up totally. just because it is right the fact right that you often just have like very mixed things to go off from some of which are going to be subjective some of which are going to be or like more evidence-based and you just need to use them all right to reach a decision and you're not saying that um you know, you just ignore all the subjective stuff and you only rely on the evidence. If I understand you right, what you're saying is you just take that all together and then you make a decision. You don't like have to, you know, draw up a table and work out all your like uh, expected value thing. Is, is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, um, I don't tend to think of the primitive building blocks as being evidence and subjective beliefs. I think of it as being theories and explanations and criticism. Um, mm. and so these are the things which are, uh, that unify both the data case and the not data case. All we have are theories and criticism. Um, sometimes a criticism can take the form of data, not all the time. Um, and when it doesn't, then you have to rely on other forms of criticism. But notice that nothing that I've said is subjective. It is um, it is a objective property of what Popper would say is the third world. But it's it's a it's a it's an output of human cognition. Um, Einstein's theory of relativity is objective. Um, he could change his mind on it. He could believe something different and it wouldn't matter because the theory would stand on its own. Um, it doesn't matter what he believes. He could believe tomorrow that it's all wrong if he was still alive. But it wouldn't matter because it was written down and now we can think about it in its own terms, right? Um, so. I, I, I might be completely off the mark here. Uh, so, Vaden, definitely tell me if I'm wrong here. But like, I definitely agree with the sentiment that theory is really important and is something that is really being neglected. So like the thing I'm kind of thinking about is with like advances in machine learning and stuff where you can get decisions, right? But they're incredibly opaque and you have no theory behind them whatsoever. And you're just relying on this like very opaque kind of decision making thing for you that you have no control over. Like a lot of theory gets lost. And when that gets applied to certain criteria, and then you just kind of agree with whatever accuracy, right? You know, you have, and then you take that as your probability of if it's right or wrong, uh, like just that track record. That can be really problematic if you don't actually understand the the theory underlying it. And um, you shouldn't be misplacing trust in there. And that I definitely see and uh, I definitely agree with. Yeah, to, yeah so like um, an example I've used in the past to kind of emphasize this point is, um, is let's say we invented like deep learning before we invented meteorology. Um, so you can imagine training... Uh, deep models to predict if it's going to um, rain or snow or uh, hail tomorrow. Um, and we could predict it with a high degree of accuracy. And then when people say, well, what's actually happening in the real world? What, like, what's, what do you, uh, then all the scientists just throw up their hands and basically say, well, we, it's not up to us to make any decisions or have any theory about what's actually going on. It's, you know, uh, it could be Zeus, it could be um, solar flares, it could be Apollo. All we care about is, is prediction. Um, David Deutsch that, gives a great example there where he yeah. imagines we landed ourselves with some oracle which can tell us whether our predictions are true or false with yes. perfect accuracy. Um, mm -hmm. That would be surprisingly not very useful if we're trying to, for instance, like build a spaceship or something. Because where do you start? Yeah. You need ideas and that you can't just get ideas mm -hmm. from things you already know and asking how likely they Oof. are. This kind of thing. Um, exactly. I think one thing we might be getting confused about is this kind of broader, weaker view, which is a subjective interpretation of probability. You know, roughly the view that some probabilities 
uh, make claims about mental states rather than the world. And then a like slightly more specific, kind of more knotty uh, view about science, which is like a kind of Bayesian philosophy of science. And yeah, again, I think you can pull those things apart and you could be mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. really into the preparing um, mm-hmm. view of yeah. science while also thinking that it's appropriate to use um, subjective estimates of probability. So for what right. it's worth, like I think my own view is something like that, that kind of this like very broad Bayesian epistemology is like you know pretty plausible um so i think most things just end up untouched um maybe that's kind of unfair but that's kind of where my head is okay so it feels worth moving on um uh, and bringing this back to long-termism so for context you vaden wrote a a hit piece uh against long term <laughs> <And>, um, <laughs> uh, one of the things the points you made was that long-termists rely on taking an expectation over the very long-run future. They then point out how kind of enormous it is, and then they justify things on that basis. Um, your point is that uh, it's not that the far future is big in expectation, it's actually undefined in expectation, because it's not appropriate to take an expectation over that kind of thing. And the um, example or reason you give is to imagine uh, an infinite set of alternating like black and white balls or something uh in a big infinite urn and um this is like a kind of neat and surprising fact about infinite sets uh where you don't have a measure over them you can ask a question like i'm gonna pick out a ball at random what's the probability that it's white and the naive answer is 50 percent and the true answer is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, actually undefined without a measure. And a measure is, well, it's kind of just a way of like getting legitimate probabilities uh, when you start asking questions about infinite sets. Um, and that is cool and true as far as it goes. My point is that um, if that argument applies to long futures finite but very long futures then presumably also applies to short futures but we can reason about short futures so it doesn't apply um to long futures and just to draw that out um when long-termists make their argument in terms of taking an expectation over the very long-run future they are not normally interested in infinite value and certainly they don't rely on it they're interested in very long finite timescales and very large but finite amounts of value. So yeah, the range of possible futures is going to be very big, but it's not qualitatively different to the range of futures for the next year or the next decade or the next century. So if you want to say that in order to take an expectation over the next decade, you need to consider an infinite set of outcomes, then you know, sure, you can't take an expectation over what's going to happen in the next decade. But if you don't need to worry about infinite sets in the decade case, then the question is, you know, at what point do they enter in? Uh, is it centuries or millennia? And if they don't enter in at all, then the point doesn't go through. And if they do enter in at all, then the point proves too much. And it just says that we can't reason about the future at all. Um, so that's roughly the kind of response uh, I was going for. And hopefully that makes sense. Totally. Great. Um, 
So just to repeat back the concern to make sure that we all are on the same page, um, you grant the infinite set case, but the worry is that, well, tomorrow there's an infinite set of things that could happen as well. And we obviously reason about um, tomorrow probabilistically. Uh, so why can't we reason about tomorrow one billion years from now probabilistically? Um, because it's a continuum. It's not like a discrete change. And so uh, what what gives? Is that fair? Yeah, so, yeah. sounds uh, good. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, so this is perfect. So we were talking earlier about um, objective views of probability, subjective views. Uh, but there's a third one, which is often neglected from the conversation, um, like people in the future. Uh, and it's the instrumental view of, of probability. And that's the one which I claim is the only real way to think about this uh, without paradox. Um, because, of course, you can assume a measure onto an infinite set. Of course, you can do that. You can assume that of the infinite um, different things that could happen, uh, AI takeover is going to have a probability of 0.3, and everything else is going to be um, constant compared to, to that. So people assume infinite uh, assume measures over infinite sets however they like, whenever they want to. Um, that's fine. Uh, the instrumental view says... Um, there is no intrinsic probability associated with the future. Um, and there's no intrinsic subjective probability estimate either. It's just, uh, the only question is what is useful in service of accomplishing some goals? Um, so what's a useful assumption to make in order to accomplish some task at hand? Um, that is what Bayesian statistics is all about. That's what statistics just in general is all about. And what modeling is, is all about is for tomorrow, I have a dinner party and I'm going to put a probability distribution over the people who are attending because that is useful for me to get an estimate over the um, attendees. I can do that. I can also put a probability distribution over what's going to happen a billion years from now. I can do that too. Um, these are just assumptions we make. And then the only question is whose assumptions are better and what is the best a set of assumptions we can uh, make in order to accomplish certain goals, right? And so we use data to do that in the short and immediate term. And the thing that gets harder and harder is adjudicating between whose sets of assumptions are better because we have less and less information to use uh, for adjudication. And so that is why there's no proving too much here. The only thing that it kills is this Bayesian absolutism, which says we have to assign credences to our beliefs. That's yeah. the only attack um, that it, it, it makes. But there's no paradox between um, an infinite set of things happening in the future and an infinite set of things happening when I flip a coin. Like it could be the case that somebody detonates a bomb in between the coin flip and therefore the probability of it landing heads is also undefined. That's, that's fine. I could make that assumption. It's just that it's not a very reasonable one uh, and it's not a very useful one because yes. it doesn't help me to accomplish my, my goal at hand. Yeah, I'm like sympathetic to what you're saying about when it is and isn't appropriate to take expectations over super uncertain and super far out events. What I am not so sure about is that the particular argument you make in terms of infinite sets is very relevant at all. Yeah, it would be surprising if like a kind of neat observation about measure theory could tell us something significant about these kind of things. Um, and then on the point about like instrumentalism, yeah, I mean, that sounds like interesting and plausible. One way to push back is you said, look, the question is um, whose assumptions are better, right? 
uh, or like whose estimates are better. And if by better, you mean whose assumptions are just like more true or more accurate. No, I mean more useful. Yeah, right. So it's between either more true or more accurate or more useful. Uh, if you're going in for more more useful, you know, I'm not saying anything new here, right? But the kind of canonical pushback to any kind of like instrumentalist view is that it seems that there are cases where um, a guess might not be useful, but might be more true, or the most useful guess might be less true. Um, and it feels a little, I don't know, kind of postmodern or something. To... Oh, no, definitely not. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> that was so, like, okay. deliberately triggering, yeah. right? But, yeah, uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I, I do. Yeah, yeah. So the common uh, concern against instrumentalism is that it just leads to relativism, that it's um, my usefulness versus your usefulness. Um, and that is very much the reason why I'm not an instrumentalist in the domain of epistemology. Knowledge is not just about usefulness. Knowledge is about what's actually true. Probability is not the same as knowledge. <laughs> Probability is mainly about usefulness, except in very certain circumstances, which I can enumerate, um, where we have physical theories that tell us we expect randomness to occur in nature. So casinos and um, chaotic events uh, are precisely those ones where um, there is an underlying truth of the matter, because, for example, the central limit theorem is going to happen whether or not I believe in it. So that is where there is some truth there, um, and that is the rare case. Um, so instrumentalism, as applied to knowledge, is very susceptible to your critique, and that's why I'm not an instrumentalist when it comes to epistemology. But when it comes to probability, probability is just a tool that is useful um, in most cases. The other corner case is um, quantum mechanics, but I'm not going to go there. Um, I want to make one other point, which is like it seems completely irrelevant to the discussion of long-termism. Um, and that's actually, that's a fair point. Uh, like who, like why would we care about this stupid infinite set thing um, in the case of like moral values and, and stuff, right? And so the majority of my piece, I focus on other aspects, right? Um, but if I didn't also provide a, a technical argument against both of their assumptions, um, so in the case for uh, strong long-termism, um, they list two assumptions. Uh, and so I needed to both point out that I think this is a immoral philosophy come ideology, but I also needed to refute it on its own terms, right? And so the ref refutation of long-termism on its own terms um, necessitated a technical argument undermining its assumptions. Otherwise, the, the critique that I'm attacking it based on uh, negative conclusions would be thrown because I had to undermine the, the actual argument itself. So, I think it's worth just restating that the case for long-termism, or at least this kind of expected value case, it relies on putting a kind of plausible-ish flaw on the potential value of the long-run future. So all you need to get going is a claim like, the future, it seems, you know, pretty likely that it mm -hmm. could be... Mm -hmm enormously valuable and that's pretty much all you need the numbers are actually not necessary but they are kind of you can see how they're nice if you're like an analytic philosopher and you want to give the impression of being you know rigorous and technical um so although this particular style of reasoning might be inappropriate um i'm not sure it, criticizing that style of reasoning gets at the claim that comes out of it even the strong claim because all the arguments don't need uh, you to come up with like an accurate guess as to the actual quote unquote 
um, size of the future and expectation. The uh, use of words instead of numbers, I think, is an excellent suggestion. And I have no problem with people talking about, yeah, I'm pretty sure such and such is going to happen, or I'm pretty unsure. That such that, That's great. Um, what yeah. uh, I am concerned about is Shivani in the case for strong long-termism, where she takes uh, numbers pulled out of thin air and compares <laughs> it to the expected value of malaria charities. This is not me saying people are doing this. This is one of the like main um, components of the argument is that if you are Shivani and you have to decide what um, uh, where to put your money, you should also reason like her. Uh, you should compute the expected value of totalitarian world governments and AI doomsday and John Hamm, and then you should compare that to GiveWell's expected values. Uh, and this is seen as like the pinnacle of uh, reasoning. This is a, an extended narrative was made about Shivani that fed through the entire paper. Um, and the point of this is that we're all Shivani. Like this is the point that McCaskill and Greaves are, are making. We are, we are all Shivani. We should do what Shivani does, uh, which is to basically <laughs> give up on Africa, give up on poverty uh, fighting, and we should just put money into long-termism or better we should set up a constitutionally um, dedicated long-termist foundation. Or better, if we don't have money to do that or time, we should uh, go into uh, long-termism research directly. It's, it's, it's this um, black hole of ideology, which is just sucking everything into it. Um, and I think using words instead of precise numerical values would be a very useful way to... Uh, prevent this slide from from happening so i agree this might be cut but one pushback there is that you can just translate the argument that gets given in the paper you're talking about no 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 you can't in terms of vaguer words and then you just get the same conclusion but vaguer it's not as if uh, the conclusion doesn't come when you get less precise. It's just the the argument for it becomes less precise. I don't think that's true. I think they're relying on the very precise numbers that you get by comparing, like, the number of lives saved for GiveWell versus, like, the 10 to the 3 or whatever lives saved if you donate to AI safety. Like, it's very explicit about the number of future people, the probability of saving lives for AI safety. And as soon as you replace... A possible 10 to the 15 people with the sentence the future could possibly be pretty big the, re the reasoning does not follow at all now you have vague things about maybe ai is a problem uh give well we have pretty good evidence that give well is very effective on the order of a live saved for three thousand dollars and now you can't do arithmetic with you can't do arithmetic with those statements right and so now you actually have to dive into the arguments for thinking like why is ai safety a problem why could it be a problem like what's the evidence for that um and so i i yeah i don't think it's true that the argument would go through if you start using vaguer language i think it's like a f full stop mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to, to the to the long term expected yeah. values are defined over words right it's defined only over numbers i i don't know if this is helpful or not but it might be worth just like emphasizing then if i, if I understand you right that the point is not just our earlier discussion right of like subjective probabilities and issues with exactly what that number is but bringing in this other thing of like 
this astronomical value of the future, which is infinity or just some really big number, and then multiplying it together. So just to like kind of reiterate, it's not just the problem that the probability bit is wrong. It's bigger mm-hmm. than that. It's that you then go on to multiply it with this insane number. Whether, whether that initial subjective probability is 70% that there's going to be a nuclear war in a thousand years or 0.0001% or what have you, it doesn't really matter. It's the like multiplying it by infinity thing and then mm-hmm. using that to come up mm-hmm. with your decision. That's the, and, and, that's and you the issue. Precisely. And because you couldn't do this um, when you have data, right? Like, yeah. uh, so from a frequentist perspective, fine, but also from a Bayesian statistical perspective, also you can't just come up with arbitrarily large numbers pulled out of thin air because there's something to constrain you. Uh, there's some thing that will tell you if your assumption is right or wrong. Uh, but when you are allowed to just pull up numbers and call them probabilities, and then everything starts to become this just mushy goo of uh, large numbers multiplied by small numbers, and then uh, a giant story is weaved behind it. Yeah. Well, hang on. Is the problem that we are paying too much attention or worrying too much about high stakes and low probabilities? Or is the worry that those probabilities are too arbitrary? My guess is that there are actually two worries here. One worry is that if you go along expected value style reasoning, even when the probabilities you use are entirely like au fait and objective, then you could end up still with kind of unreasonable sounding conclusions about the things we should do because um, the choices you make are dominated by outcomes which are very, very unlikely, but if they were to happen, they'd be like exceptionally bad or exceptionally good. Which is why Ben and I continuously um, emphasize the arguments and explanations and theories component, right? Like that's the thing that is the thing that's really under consideration. And the probability is just a stand-in for the fact that say we have a decent uh, understanding of how to make nuclear weapons and the theory that there may be a nuclear mistake is is reasonable enough to put money right. to preventing this from, from happening. But uh, subjective probabilities is never a focal point of our thinking when it comes to um, uh, the world. It's always about theories and explanations. And then subjective probabilities are sometimes like a nice to have on top of that, but not anything to take much more seriously than the, than that. Yeah, sorry. So I just I just wanted to like make that make that distinction because it does feel like there are kind of two two things going on rather than one. And um, when you say this style of reasoning, um, I think you're like referring to two things. Once, just to be clear, one is like s- subjective probabilities, and the other is expected value reasoning. The style of reasoning, just like for listeners, um, you don't have to know anything about expected values. It's just make up some crazy scenario. Assume it's really unlikely, but if it happens, it would be devastating. And then get everyone to work on that instead of things we concretely know about, like poverty. Um, and that's the, that's the problem I have. Um, and the only reason this is taken so seriously is because of all this probability stuff that lies underneath it. But again, the focus of the thing that I think is a bad idea is doing that. And then the reason people do that is because of all of this this giant iceberg-like structure of philosophy that lies underneath it. <laughs> but it's just a bad style of argumentation that has very damaging consequences. Yeah. Yeah. This is literally just like to, to clear up my understanding here. So Finn is saying they're two different things, and they are two different things. But like the point is, is that the types of arguments are made kind of rely on both things. Because even if you don't use... E- even if you use 
infinity and stuff, but then you don't use subjective probabilities. You just look at the evidence because there is no evidence, right? Just because we don't have the data on AI takeover or anything that's going to happen in the future, then you have infinity, but you have probability zero, right? And then it's not something you kind of need to worry about. It's it's sci-fi, right? It's kind of kind of fiction stuff. So it is the fact that both things are relevant here because you kind of need both. And, and also, um, it only gives like... If you, we didn't have this giant literature of people uh, celebrating the use of subjective probabilities, no one would argue in this style because it's self-evidently <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but it's only because it's taken, uh, uh, it's given such currency because every conversation pointing out the ridiculousness of this quickly moves into a conversation about probability. And then that's what you're arguing about. Um, um, and so, so it's necessary to go into the probability stuff because you have to argue in the weeds. But ultimately... That is just the reason why this kind of argumentation has gotten such currency and is doing such damage. Like it, it's something that Ben mentioned at the end of, um, I think our first giant uh, uh, shot at long-termism, which is just like um, we all care about the future, and like Popperian philosophy kind of um, highlights is that the best way to help the future is to just work on solving problems right here, right now that we know how to solve. And a huge problem that I'm like super. Uh, uh, interested in is is the problem of trying to enable self education in developing countries because I think that if like kids in say Africa and India were able to like self educate using the internet and stuff, then we would have just huge amounts of knowledge coming out, and that would I think be like the meta x risk that would address all of these other concerns, right? Um, huge, huge, and so like you can you can frame that concern from purely a long termist lens. You can say, I care about the long term. The best way to safeguard the long term is to enable knowledge production now, because the one thing that the future is going to need is more knowledge. And the best way to do that is education. Um, and, and so you could, you could frame it this way. Um, and notice that I don't have to talk about probabilities. I just talk about the power of, of knowledge, right? Um, and, and so that's the, the main, main thing. Yeah. That is really interesting. And I think it hits, interestingly enough, on one of the reasons why I'm really keen about long-termism generally is that I feel you do need to take this kind of approach in order to justify those types of interventions. So we talked a lot, right, about kind of give well and this really like evidence RCT backed kind of studies. But it's also really important to notice that those studies are based on like a very narrow perspective of like what they're actually measuring. A lot of those RCTs are from a very explicit cost-benefit analysis, which means you look at the dollar cost and you look at the dollar benefit. And the dollar benefit they typically look at is wages. And wages is a really poor indicator, right? If you're interested in education and this kind of knowledge creation and the ideas that, you know, benefit things more broadly, it's really badly to look at just like, you know, what wage a scientist or something might get paid for the value they're creating. And I feel that if you're, if, if the consequence of rejecting long-termism is that you only then look at these kind of give well studies, which are really great and I think add a lot of value into it, but really also mean you're losing out on these other types of interventions that might be really useful. You're actually hurting the the kind of causes you're, you're trying to promote here. I would just disagree that you need long-termism in order to justify looking at other um, outcomes, right? So I think the criticism there is that RCTs and development economics can be too particular in its goals, right? Or its methods are constrained. And we should realize that and we should criticize them and potentially fund studies to look at other things or be on guard for um, only paying attention to that which can be measured very absolutely. And that's a totally valid criticism to make. And, um, and trying to look at 
at uh, other things or rather um, looking at like other studies to fund or just paying attention to other things is a valid criticism that can be made totally independently of long-termism. So I don't, maybe you can just illuminate where long-termism would actually start doing work there for you. Cause I, mm. I don't think I see that bit. Okay. If you take like a more long-term perspective and I'm not talking about a thousand years here, but if you just take like the general heuristic that you want to build a world that's really good in 50 years, and then that is your, we can say proxy goal or something. And then you break down, okay, what do we need for that? And then you say, okay, well, we need economic growth for that. What drives economic growth? Economic growth gets driven by technologies, which gets driven by inventions, which gets driven by education. And therefore, I prioritize education. Now, this has nothing to do with this kind of expected value utility thing we were talking before, but it does come from a long-term perspective of you're interested in creating a world that's not just good tomorrow or in a week's time or in a year, it's good in the long term. And from that, you then reason back that education is something you care about and you're willing to promote, even if that means not giving money to malaria nets or deworming pills, right? I think I think that's where, where I'm kind of coming from. One thing that I dislike about the term X risk is it carries the assumption that every other problem besides this is less important. Um, and so I, I think that uh, there are many different um, ways to view how to best make the world a better place for our descendants. Uh, one is taking an education perspective, and that's kind of the one that I, I like, but another is taking economics perspective, and uh, another is taking an environmental perspective, and another is taking a uh, gender equality perspective or a, um, a marriage equality perspective. There's a thousand different lenses that we can uh, use to view how to make the world better, and I think that that's great. And I think that everybody should um, have a kind of a personal relationship with, with that argument which appeals most to them and then work on that but the the uh, implication or not an implication like the direct um uh view of of people at FHI and and stuff is that uh there are actually only four or five things that are important um these are the existential risks uh and everything else that's a non existential risk is almost by definition less important and this is um like directly stated on the 80,000 hours uh, website and just the way that they talk about um, prioritizing long-term things over short-term oh. things. Finn, you're shaking your head, so you should respond. But, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Like, I'm not saying I agree with those claims, but I'm also keen to make some distinction here between claims about what's best to do at the margin and what would be best for everyone to do in absolute terms in some ideal world. Um, so do fans of long-termism think that other interventions are not important? Obviously not. And I'm not suggesting you think they are saying that, but <laughs> they're not, to be clear. May I read a quote, um, just to give a flavor of like what I'm uh, referring to? So this comes from... Uh, Nick Bostrom, um, and it, I think it is one of his first papers on existential risk. So he's he's talking about events like Chernobyl, Bhopal, um, volcano eruptions, earthquakes, droughts, World War One, World War Two, um, epidemics of influenza, smallpox, the Black Plague, and AIDS. And about this, he writes: um, these types of disasters have occurred many times, and our cultural attitude towards risks have shaped. Um, have been shaped by trial and error in managing such hazards. Uh, 
But tragic as these events are to the people immediately effective, in the big picture of things, from the perspective of humankind as a whole, even the worst of these catastrophes are just mere ripples on the surface of the great sea of life. Um, they haven't significantly affected the total amount of human suffering or happiness or determined the long-term fate of our species. Um, this is in the seminal paper on existential risk. Um, so the implication, if not the direct belief, this direct statement is that the only thing that matters are existential risks and things like World War I, World War II, AIDS, and influenza and smallpox are mere ripples, mere ripples. So this is what I'm drawing attention to. Uh, I, I guess there's no problems whatsoever with working on um, smallpox or <laughs> AIDS or world, preventing world wars. These are all legitimate uh, um, concerns. Uh, but when you call the thing that you're working on existential risks and everything else that other people are working on short-term, short-termist, then this is um, uh, carrying the implication that the problems that you deem to be um, significant are more significant than everybody else's problems. And I would never in a thousand years say that um, enabling children to self-educate in developing countries um, is so important that not doing that is an existential risk. That's like, it's like, almost like moral blackmail. To accuse people who don't share my view as contributing to an exis the, the, the suicide of our species is what this is implying. Um, and, and, and this is a huge uh, conversation stifler. Also to provide another example, unfortunately I don't have a quote for it, so you'll just have to take it on faith that I'm uh, representing the views of, of people faithfully. But um, I've, you know, I think probably you guys have come across this too. Like I've, I've been in lots of conversations with people sympathetic to long-termism who have like stopped caring about um, animal welfare, for example, because they think it's like a very short-term cause and with clean meat on the way, um, the amount of suffering is like, it's finite, right? And so it can't possibly be with us for more than say like 50 years, um, at which point we'll have like clean meat. And so they're choosing to work on like very long-term nebulous problems, like certain existential risks are going to work on AGI and not caring about animal welfare um, precisely because of these arguments. So um, anyway, just another example of how like it really does impact your day to day and like what you, what you value. It, it, it just, just to, just to like add something, this is the explicit moral recommendation from the case for strong long-termism. So the idea then is for the purpose of evaluating actions, we can in the first instance often simply ignore the effects contained in the first 100 or 1,000 years. What do you think people are doing when they ignore animal suffering? They're following the recommendations from FHI, um, the explicit ones. Uh, and, and so this is, this is the problem that Ben and I are trying to highlight, which is that this flattens everything. I think one absolutely crucial point to make here is that, at least on the best exposition of long-termism, the claim is not that the long term matters because the short term doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, yeah. Or that sure. the short term doesn't matter any less. Everything we already cared about stays fixed. All of those things are just as important in absolute terms as they were before. And what's happened here is that we've just, if you buy into it anyway, um, the idea is that we've realized there's this kind of repository of like potential value and potential suffering um, that is 
potentially even greater. Um, so it's not like you become like any less obliged to a avoid kind of certain kind but you of can trade off between those things now right yes, so you yeah. can make... by the way i, I want to just at risk of sounding like a psychopath i want to caveat what i've said by saying that's what the long-termist like would say right like i'm right, not saying, right. you know yeah, yeah. what i would go for, but that's 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 the idea um sure like if you kind of normalize by what's more relatively important than anything else then short-term interventions become less relatively important. But that's a kind of trivial consequence that you get all the time. Like if you recognize that animals have moral patienthood, then humans are less um, morally significant as a proportion of all the sentient beings in the in the world once you make that realization. But that's like neither here nor there, right? Um, but, but I think you're making a really important point and I think we should talk about it more. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with Ben, what you said there about like trade-offs and stuff. And I think if somebody can credibly show me how like eating meat is going to bring on mm. like a faster, like clean meat future, I can like imagine like becoming convinced and finding that all right. I just think in a lot of, I just often see those right. claims being made and not really being backed up in that kind of way. I just wanted to pick up on something Finn said about um, how it, it's, it's not that we're saying short term uh, suffering doesn't matter. It's just that in absolute terms, when you compare it against future suffering, it um, it's a, it's a smaller sh uh, slice of the pie. It's, it's it's there's some suffering now, but there's a potentially infinite amount of suffering in the future, and that's what we need to address. Um, I would just say that your uh, response is what mm. Mm. any utopian yeah. philosophy would be able to say. Right? Um, it, it, we're not saying that the lives of the working class don't matter. We're just saying that the best way to improve the lives of the working class is to overthrow the capitalist bourgeoisie uh, system, right? And so, of, of course, the suffering matters. It's just the most effective way to reduce suffering is to try to overthrow the capitalist hegemony. Uh, this would be kind of the style of argument that would be made. And the problem is always comparing... Yeah. Yeah. A potential infinite well of future goodness against finite suffering right now. And that's the similarity between long-termism and other utopian forms of uh, philosophy. Yeah, sure. So we were talking about the kind of slightly <clears throat> more technical worries about formal frameworks. And now it feels like we've moved on to kind of practical and... Uh, epistemic. Yeah, so there's an interesting distinction that I've seen made a couple times now where people say, listen, you're attacking, say, the, the implementation of these ideas. And in practice, like your critique, that makes sense. In practice, fine. But theoretically, you haven't really touched the theory. You haven't un touched the underlying core ideas. It's just you're, implement uh, you're criticizing the implementation. Um, I only care about implementation. I only care about the practical consequences of a philosophy. The the deep theoretical underpinning is not a concern of mine. That is for, interests other people, that's fine, but when it comes to ethical and moral philosophies, I only care what it actually does in regards to how people treat one another. Um and if the what it does is it makes people say downweight the significance of providing pain relief medication to uh, the poor and upweight the significance of working on John Hamm problem scenarios, then I don't care how beautiful the underlying theory is. I care only about the practical implications. Yeah. 
you can get rid of the baby and keep the bathwater in the sense that you can change course, realize that there's some core to the theory that is plausible, and then the practical working out is really worrying. Let's kind of notice that worry and then realize that kind of core thought behind long-termism in a less horrendous way. Um, so presumably the theory and the practice both matter. Um, but I was going to mention here, there's a kind of interesting uh, comparison to other kind of arguments that you hear. Um, so what's the criticism here? It's something like, um, you know, long-termism claims to make the world go better in the very long run if it were put into practice, something like that. And then you say, look, the kind of reasoning that long-termism is using is just the kind of reasoning that totalitarian regimes of the past used to justify all manner of harms and persecution and human tragedies. So even if, in theory, you claim to care about doing the good thing in the long run, I have a reason to expect that in practice, even if your intentions are perfectly good, um, that you could very well end up doing an awful lot of harm, right? Okay, I said there was a comparison, and then the comparison is to these kind of self-undermining objections in the case of other ethical views like uh, utilitarianism, where you get a thought like this. Utilitarianism says that um, the best actions, the best things to do, are those actions which maximise well-being or other good consequences. But if we only acted on that basis, according to that rule, and we didn't care about things like telling the truth and respecting people's autonomy or rights, then people would lose faith and trust in one another and just like all kind of institutions of truth-telling and trust would just crumble and actually the consequences would be, would be terrible. So like far from, you know, maximising well-being, utilitarianism implemented in practice, and thank God it is not, um, would actually make people worse off. And the conclusion is then that utilitarianism like undermines itself, right? That's a pretty bad argument because the response is, well, you're not arguing against utilitarianism. You're arguing there against a kind of naive first working out of what utilitarianism might say. And what you've showed is that actually it doesn't say that, right? You kind of just uh, revise the, uh, the recommendations which you think it makes. And then... In the case of long-termism, if the argument is something similar, which is, look, long-termism um, says that the best actions are, th are those actions, at least in a lot of contexts, which make the very long-run future go best. Um, but those actions in practice would like be really disastrous. Well, I think the most that that shows is that a naive version of long-termism is bad. And actually, that's still quite important because... Maybe like we need to kind of keep revising what we think it implies in order to just avoid these like dangerous, naive first workings out. Does that make sense? So let me reframe for long-termism just to make sure I understand. So the critique is something like, um, fine, if you assume that long-termism is going to tell us to only care about the future um, and demonstrate that that's going to lead to bad consequences... Um, 
and in the process, therefore, destroy our future potential, then that will demonstrate that we just need a more sophisticated version of long-termism, right? So that doesn't undermine long-termism per se. It just shows us that um, our initial conception of what it looks like to work on the long-term future is flawed. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I I think one good thing to bring in at this point as well is right back in the intro, right? We were very like broad or like general in defining like what long-termism is. And it might be useful to bring in like some more specific definitions where the EA community is at the moment trying to work out, you know, what there is. And there's debates about like what long-termism implies. And I think so far we've generally, it feels like we've been talking about this form of um, like either patient long-termism, which says that there's no point doing anything today. You should invest your resources, gain interest, and then you'll have more to do in the future um where there's like a lot more value to be created um you also have this form of urgent long-termism which relies on this idea that today is really special and it means that we can lock things in today that will have an effect like many years into the future whether that be a hundred years or a thousand years i think is more is more dubious but that's like that kind of way and then within that you've got like two other kind of schools of thought you've got broad long-termism which says that you're not really sure what anything does um, like specifically, but you should just generally invest in institutional capacity or just like broader ways that you might help the future. And then you've got targeted long-termism, which is much more specific where you take a particular S risk or a particular path change and you focus your efforts there. So all of those definitions is what I last read on the, on the 80,000 hours website, but it might be like good to kind of distinguish as well as in what Finn was saying. Um, that long-termism can mean a bunch of different things and we're still trying to work out what that is. And some of those things just might be naive and some of them you know, might actually be getting a, at something useful. It strikes me as decently analogous to arguments about what is true Christianity or what is true Marxism, um, where you get this like splintering effect. Uh, but in fact, Marxism and Christianity and long-term is, is just what Marxists and Christians and long-termists <laughs> do. It's not a specific, like, we're just arguing about different slivers of something. But again, all that matters is how it makes people act in practice. Um, yeah. And, yeah, this and, goes back to what Faden was saying about, like, in practice versus theory, right? Like, I think, Finn, your question assumes that there's some theory, there's some, like, theory of long-termism, some true essential theory of long-termism, and we are just lowly humans trying to interpret this, like, amazing mathematical slash symbolic um, theory that we like have partial access to and then we're exploring in what ways it should be correctly instantiated but like I just don't see the distinction no, I see like people have ideas yeah. and they act on them and we should be criticizing the ways in which it makes them act well, the process is um, so clearly it's not the case that some idea is handed down to us and we're in the business of yeah. trying to discover what that idea is and we're kind of getting it wrong and we're like archaeologists uncovering this kind yeah. of I kind of got that though from your conception of like we you know we have this naive implementation and then based on the results we like we adjust so we can try try and find the true conception of long termism. Yeah, maybe true is the wrong word. Maybe just best is another word. Um, okay, it's it, you know you can you can refine theories in other contexts and it's like yeah, uh, there's no suggestion that you're uncovering something. Um, 
but it is possible just to improve a theory. And maybe that's what we're doing. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's fine. Um, I think a f- more f- fruitful way to improve a theory would be to recognize that certain moves should be off the table. Um, I will continue to repeat the multiplication of big numbers and small numbers and then making serious decisions on that. So just say whatever form of long-termism we're going to have is going to not do that. Um, because now we're talking about the consequence of certain moves. And contrast that against... Here is a taxonomy yeah. of 500 different variations of long-termism. Yeah. You have patient long-termism and slow patient long-termism. And, and, and then what's the true definition of, of – and what's the best one? Um, that seems to me to be uh, a less fruitful way to improve mm. theory. Let's just focus on specific um, forms of argumentation, which we all recognize are ineffective at accomplishing our goals. And our goal in the broadest case is to make – the world better for everyone. That's that's just the the, the broadest goal that we all unite again uh, around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I think is better than trying to say, well, that sounds like a naive implementation of long termism. And so let's consider patient strong, soft flavors of long termism. I, I don't know, but but there's like <laughs> a, a thousand yeah. different definitions, and now we all have to memorize and understand the various definitions. Um, and this is a waste of our time when we can just say, let's just not do this thing anymore. And let's not care about the different definitions. Let's just all agree we shouldn't do this thing. Well, not if one of them turns out to be plausible. You you said, I'm, you know, in the example yeah. of Christianity, well, first of all, you said, look, we're only interested in how this thing works out in practice. Um, and <laughs> that obviously matters enormously. But there's also space to be interested in just what's true or what's the best version, even if it doesn't get implemented. And, you know, the example of Christianity is even if everyone or almost everyone who call themselves a Christian don't live up to like true Christian values, it would still be interesting to find out if some version of Christianity is true, even if no one lives up to that version. And especially in this case where, you know, presumably people are interested in how to improve this thought before the wheels really start turning and the movement takes off as, you know, they're kind of hoping it hoping it would. So it's useful to think about what the best theory is and to do that taxonomy in order to, to make that decision, right? It's not fixed. But, but when we're talking about ethical theory, theories that are true are those which improve the most amount of uh, people's lives, right? Ethics is a unique case in this setting because we're not talking about theories of physics. We're talking about theories of how human beings relate to each other. Um, and then the like theory and practice are the same. Um, ethical theories are only as good as they improve the way that human beings relate to each other. Um, at least when I say I'm interested in ethics, that's what I'm interested in is improving the way that human beings relate. And if you say, well, ethics is actually about um, figuring out what the right discount factor is on the future well-being of people between now and uh, the heat death of the universe, then I don't, that's not something that I think ethics is interest is interesting from an ethical perspective, but I can't control obviously what the the whole field is talking about. But uh, but I, I just think that this, this distinction between theory and practice is a silly one when we're talking about ethical theories. I I might be misunderstanding what what you're saying there, but when you're talking about not being as interested in in like the theory behind like the discount rate, I do see like how that has incredibly important like impacts in practice as well though like what like for example i mentioned this like um you know thing in like government cost benefit analysis where you have like an explicit term for your like pure time preference right and that is something that philosophers have made like a case for being zero but that isn't zero because of norms or 
other reasons like with within economics that we can get into but i think it's like a bit of a a bit of a tangent right but that is like a very clear avenue to me where like theory and being able to work these things out maybe in a more abstract way can really impact like real world decisions yeah so the idea here is that deciding which theory is best is just deciding which would be best in practice and there shouldn't be daylight between those two things that's I'm not sure we disagree <laughs> because you were you were making. Yeah, I don't. I think yeah, there's a semantic difference. Okay, yeah, yeah, Because I, I guess maybe I was misunderstanding um, that there is a claim that this could be true even if it leads to horrible consequences in practice. Um, and yeah. I'm saying that if it leads to horrible consequences in practice, then it's not true when it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're all kind of like broadly consequentialists, so I think we agree there. There is, but, but but truth yeah. in this context refers to practice, and so there, we can't make this distinction. Is is my my point? People want to make the claim that yeah, sure, long termism could kill everyone, but it could still be true, right? Um, and it could still be the case that long termism is true, even if it creates a huge amount of suffering. No, oh. no, I think maybe it's something like a naive version of long termism could end up being incredibly harmful. But it doesn't follow that some version of long-termism could be true and therefore really good. Like, I, th- I think maybe to give like an example, if we take naive long-termism to mean that all the money that we were going to donate to malaria nets or deworming, we're now just going to put into a bank account and we're going to wait for interest to accrue. And then at some point we'll, we'll spend it. And we can imagine, right, where that leads to just a really bad scenario where you never end up spending it. It's just a massive drain on resources and the world becomes a worse place. And that would be like a naive example of long-termism, which we might fall into, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that's the case. Um, the argument for, for, for patient long-termism is much more nuanced, but we'll just take that as like a naive kind of example. We could also imagine a, more sophisticated version, which I suspect, uh, Vaden and Ben, you might be more sympathetic to, which is this case that, okay, we want to improve the, the long-term future and save this astronomic value. And we do that by investing in education, investing in malaria nets and the like, because that is our best route to that future, which I don't think you disagree with. You just then say, okay, well, then it's obvious. What's the point in doing all of this? And I think that leads on to like another disagreement we might have where I don't think that's like the most obvious case and there is like interesting things long-termism can bring in but i think that might help distinguish between like a naive interpretation of long-termism and maybe a more a more like um yeah reflected one i think there's i think again this is mostly just semantic differences i think if if you just replace interpretation of long-termism with just calling it a separate theory then i completely agree with you like well i'm just i'm just concerned about like the actionable elements of the theory so if if what you know you call theory a the theory where you're using expected value calculus to say that the amount of uh, potential future um or amount of happiness in the future is like infinite and this causes you to act in a certain way i'm criticizing that and then theory b is the one where you adopt that but then you argue for like patient philanthropy or whatever then i'll criticize that in a different way and so we can call these just like different interpretations of the same theory or we can just call these like theory a theory b theory c whatever um and then i'll just like criticize each theory in 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 turn right and 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 you don't even have to criticize the entire theory like when i'm critical of long-termism like i can grant almost everything up and like to the expanding cone that's fine let's say all of that is true I frankly don't really 
care too much about that. I just care how it makes people act in practice. Um, and, and, and so let me just grant all of that. Um, and, uh, and so the thing that I claim is making people act poorly in practice is this one rhetorical move. And let's just excise that. And then we can continue on our way talking about the 50 different variations of long-termism and I'll be happy and everyone will be happy because the concern about it making the world worse for people who are alive right now will be, um, will be gone or at least, um, a predominant source of, I think, suffering will be removed from most of these variations of long-termism because the, the suffering of people alive right here, right now, today won't be, um, swallowed by this uh comparison to an infinite amount of people in the future yeah i mean presumably no one wants to believe in a version of long-termism which they also expect to have terrible consequences um uh so yeah what you're saying is just like definitely true uh yeah but same with all utopian yes, philosophies right yeah. like no utopian yeah. philosophy wants to have a uh philosophy that's going to have terrible yeah. long-term or short-term consequences no one is in favor of that it's just an it's inevitable just byproduct it's an inevitable byproduct of this kind of moral mm. calculus yeah. yeah uh i mean i take it the, pr- the problem isn't so much um caring about um your actions having really great consequences in the long run which is something that totalitarian ideologies have in common the problem is being wrong about which actions do that uh but one thing i wanted to mention which you can get your teeth into is we were thinking about examples of like naive working out of long-termism which could potentially be harmful and it occurs to me that maybe one example is this kind of camp of uh, like degrowth environmentalist types. Uh, yeah, and the idea there is, um, you know, look what we're doing right now. Well, all kinds of resource extraction and other practices is like totally unsustainable. You just kind of draw out the line. And so what do we do? We've got to like massively downscale everything we're doing, maybe revert back to, to you know, more natural uh, modes of life, tighten our belts, and in general, just like slow down what gets called progress, but is really a kind of acceleration towards uh, like Mad Max <laughs> yep. uh, hellscape. Um, that seems kind of instructively mistaken. And it feels like, you know, lots of people call themselves long-termists and then also buy into that that kind of, handful of views so yeah i mean curious what you think about that but i'm 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 skeptical just just really quickly which is like worth just explicitly pointing out how different that vision is from like the nick bostrom stuff uh ben and vaden you were like i think mostly criticizing which is this like infinite value kind of we colonize space and like the whole universe right this is like a very different interpretation that you can reasonably also like call yourself i guess like long-termist from right um Although just to be just to be explicit, like um, man, I've forgotten his surname. Roman Krasanik, I think he, he wrote this book, uh, "The Good Ancestor," which I think is actually overall like really great, and um, you know it's like very explicitly a kind of sustained defense of long termism. But he, on one hand, he does kind of um, mentions just how big the future could be as a motivation for caring about doing things now to make it better, and then he kind of makes this move and says, "Well, therefore, we should just like." Um, do all this kind of slowing down degrowth stuff. Um, yeah, no, I, I was just going to say, I'm basically equally as criti- critical of all the degrowth stuff as like the infinite value of colonizing <laughs> space stuff. 
Um, I'm, I'm just curious, uh, the last comment about Roman, I forget yeah. his last name. How does he get from like valuing yeah. tons of future people to degrowth environmentalism? Cause my take on like the degrowth stuff is, um, sort of, it's this like ideology that humans are sort of like, uh, naturally bad, uh, for the environment and we should only take up like a certain mm-hmm. amount of space and we're ruining, uh, this glorious earth that without us would be flourishing and um, we don't actually want that many people in the future because humans, you know, what's so special about us? We're not so good. We're just like another animal. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, yeah, I'm very yeah, curious yeah. how he squares. Um, I'm like equally as critical sure. of both these views, but I'm very curious how he sort of squares both of them. Yeah. So I think the thought is that more or less the number of people who are we should expect to live in the future is pretty much fixed. Um, as good or bad as that number is. Um, and the number in particular, I think he was thinking along the lines of how long uh, has the earth got left uh, before, you know, it's scorched by the sun. Let's just expect a kind of roughly similar number of people to live century on century until that kind of time scale. And you get a number from mm. that. Holding that fixed, how do we make that go better? Well, I think... I see, I see. There's a flavour of technological scepticism where he raises the Bostrom stuff and the escaping earth stuff and transhumanism stuff and he thinks that's nice but feels a bit sci-fi for me yeah so we have a choice between continuing to do what we do uh or we kind of start shifting away and scaling down and then we kind of spread out our resources like uh more equitably or something I, I haven't read Rowan's I, book, so I don't know if this is like uh, the way he kind of thinks about it. But like to go back to Finn's cone, right? I think one way you can think about it is that if you try to expand the cone too much, it just collapses, right? So instead, what you focus on is just like making the, the cylinder as long as possible. And that is like kind of where the value comes from. I was going to say that I think both uh, camps are basically doing the same thing, which is worrying about yes. the long-term future and thinking the best way to preserve it is to stop doing everything that's got us this far. Um, stop improving technology or stop working on short-term problems, which um, by solving, we can make it a little bit better for the next generation. Uh, There's this idea that all the progress which has come before us is uh, about to end. And the best way to um, preserve the long-term is to change radically what we've done up until Mm -hmm. this point. Um, And so Mm -hmm. the long-term is short-term thing is one flavor of this, but just the environmentalist and anti-technology thing that comes around all of the time. And like environmentalism yeah. in this, to this extent is so funny. Cause if you like, if you hate half of the human race, you're a bad person for being a misogynist. If you hate like a particular race, you're a bad person for being a racist. But if you hate every human being on the planet, then you're an environmentalist. And I don't <laughs> understand this anti-human being um, tendency that uh, you get from the extreme You're a certain kind of environment. Yeah, of, of, so course, not, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah generalizing I, for, for rhetorical purposes. But uh, but it, it, it's a strain of environmentalism which basically views human beings as a pestilence, a plague, um, and, and wants to eradicate it. And I think it's a crucial insight, I think, that what's driving both of these camps is the same thing. Um, I think that same thing is like utopian thinking. Mm-hmm. So I think the long-termist is convinced that the long-term future can go exceedingly well. Uh, Just what we need to do now is like, you know, just ignore like a little bit of the suffering that's going on in the world. Make sure AGI happens. Mm -hmm. Once we have AGI, we can like 
simulate consciousness and make sure everyone's happy for billions and billions of years that'll be great and and we'll enter this um like long reflection period which is cited a lot actually in ea is taken pretty seriously we'll enter this long reflection where we'll have developed all the technology necessary to meet our needs make us happy problems will have stopped and we'll just think for like thousands of years about exactly how we want the world to look because and so so we'll enter this non-problematic period and then i think the environmentalist or the radical environmentalist thinks along similar lines like okay okay you know, we, we seem to just, right now, we're just, there's continual problems, right? We keep developing technology faster and faster. We keep running into problems. We barely avert disaster every year. If we could just scale things back and just all be happy with like, you know, a certain finite number of resources, realize that we can be happy like that, stop having kids mm-hmm. um, or stop having so many kids and just enter the state of equilibrium, all will be well. Mm-hmm. Like we can all sort of live off the land, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. And what these at, at core, what both of these philosophies miss is that problems are inevitable, right? So problems are just a product of the fact that we can't foresee all the consequences of our actions, um, even if we run expected value calculations. Uh, <laughs> and so, and because we can't foresee the consequences, but we're always trying to make things better, we're trying to solve problems. Um, that means there will always be problems. Yeah. And if we entered a state where there were no problems to solve, um, that would be really bad. <laughs> it, would, it would imply there's nowhere left to go. It would be like a state of death, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, problems just arise because of conflicting ideas, right? Conflicting ideas about like how to live better, how to make things slightly better, moral ideas. All these are these are just problems to be solved. And and having problems is a good thing, mm-hmm. right? It means we're making progress. We're we're moving forward. I, I just want to highlight one tiny little thing, which is that I think in your beautiful. Um comments, you actually gave a, a proof by contradiction that this is impossible. Because if we had a uh, got to a place where there were no more problems, that would be bad. That would be itself a problem. And so it's a logical contradiction that it's, right. it's an impossibility, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so just completely wholeheartedly agree with everything you said. And I think that there actually contains in that more than just a strong argument, but actually a refutation of this idea. I feel tempted to pour cold water on some of this because it feels possible to get ahead of ourselves and start worrying about something which no one believes. Maybe I'm the utopian. Um, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a, if it wasn't for you meddling kids. Um, <laughs> We'd all have our consciousness uploaded. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like you are worried. The the kind of transhumanist utopian camp of Bostrom and his acolytes. uh, Or just like stronger long-termists. If they got their way, they would recommend only focusing on those actions which we can be confident pay out over the very long run. Mm. And shutting down this kind of short-term problem solving um and technological progress and that's just kind of obviously not the case like one of the things these people care about the most is technological progress uh, in particular and there's a point to be made here which is i think long-termism or at least the kind of most interesting form of long-termism is a marginal claim it's pointing out that this thing is currently way neglected Uh, at least seems to be. And so there is an awful lot of potential given that it's currently neglected. Now, if they got their way and like, you know, more people cared about it, then it would become less neglected and um, less important as a consequence. Um, But it would never reach a point where it's 
it's like significantly eating in to short-term problem solving. And if it does, then I think I'm like absolutely on team Ben and Vaden where we should just be like very worried because this is just like missing an absolutely crucial okay, fact great. about Can we... pretty much all human progress up to this point, which is that it's just been like solving a problem not anticipating the next problem that comes along and then like playing whack-a-mole with all the subsequent problems. Can we all just look at the 80,000 hours problem profiles website together? Because this is already <laughs> happening. Like, I don't even know how you could possibly say that it's not no. happening. Like, So here's a question, right? So why is, uh, for instance, working on climate change feels important because climate change itself is an enormously important problem. But there are other things that matter other than the absolute importance of an issue. You might also care that the issue is neglected, that is, not many people care about it and not many resources are currently spent on it. And you would also care about how solvable the issue is, like how tractable it is. And one of the reasons, maybe, that 80,000 Hours currently thinks that these kind of weird long-term cause areas are so important isn't because the problems themselves are absolutely more important than the kind of like pressing problems that the world faces right now. Maybe it's also because um, just as a matter of fact, it looks like very few people are working on, on them relative to how important they are. And also they kind of seem solvable. And that's why it's a marginal claim because you can imagine a point in the future where the kind of talent gap gets filled and the kind of more obvious problems get solved. And now it, it's on like a more level fitting with other things. Um, that's the sympathetic case and then just like I'll say for the 15th time like I'm not <laughs> claiming that's what I think like I basically don't know what to think right now um, but you can imagine that's the pushback um, here's my analogy uh, and forgive the cheekiness but I think this gets the point across so and that there's a bunch of scientists thinking about evolution thinking about how old the world is you know trying to work out the hard problems of geology and plate tectonics and wrestling with how the climate affects how the earth evolves over time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there's like some religious fanatics who are like, uh, well, no one's really focusing on the problem of like, what if the world is just 6,000 years old and it was created by an almighty God? You know, this is a, that's a marginal claim, right? It's very neglected. Um, it could have huge impacts if it was correct. Um, and so we should have a portion of like the scientific community thinking about this question, right? It doesn't, it's, it's not about like the content of the theory. It's just like, what if it was correct? We should have, we should, we should expand our portfolio to like cover this case. Um, and Obviously, in that case, it's the you know the reasons for believing that are bad, and I think just think it's similar to the long termist case, right? Like, um, we sh we shouldn't be favoring uh, AGI over climate well, change because they're, I, in my opinion, <laughs> the the reasons for focusing on something like AGI are just bad reasons. So I'm just criticizing those regions. I'm not criticizing that, like you know, however much yeah, yeah, percent yeah. of right, anyone's right. altruistic portfolio is dedicated to the problem of long termism. I I don't care. I'm just I'm just whatever percentage they're dedicated to long-termism that's what i'm criticizing <laughs> finn does not look impressed <laughs> i just have a weird resting expression <laughs> okay i mean i'll just agree like where the reasons are bad then don't do the thing that the reasons point towards um i was just trying to clear up a like potential misunderstanding between what's just best at the margin because something's neglected and right, fair, which, like, yeah. issues are more important than other issues. And, you know, where you mix those things up, then things are going wrong. But I, I think we're on the, the, on the reasons, same page yeah. and it just comes down to like a more straightforward yeah. object level 
potential disagreement about which like reasons about you're talking as if we don't have just a really great list in front of us that shows exactly <laughs> how people prioritize all the problems on the 80,000 hours website and just please listeners go to 80,000hours.org slash problem dash profiles and you will see first that climate change is already slipping down the list so on the point of climate change just give it time it'll be off there soon um but above <laughs> things, induction yeah above things like mental health and um biomedical research are <laughs> such solvable problems as aging and global governance in outer space and um how to do whole brain emulation, which means literally download your brain into a computer like Black Mirror and S-Risks. These are interesting things to talk about and discuss, but my God, these are not even in the same camp as dealing with suffering and poverty in developing countries right now. Um, and the slip is already happening. It's like, it's not hypothetical. We don't have to think like, what is might going to happen in the future? Just look at the website and see what I'm referring to, what we're referring to. Um, I just want to highlight that because it's not a hypothetical point. I am worried or have like an intuition that there is a problem in not addressing these short-term things more because you're not going to get be in a position to address these long-term causes before you've solved a lot of the stuff. So we kind of talked about the example of climate change, right? Where I'll be like very upfront as well is like personally something I care, I think, much more than the average EA. So my judgment might be clouded there. But I don't see a world where even if we avoid the like really extreme risks of climate change, right? And we still have a future that we're going to be like in any capacity to solve things like AI or existential risks or what have you. And I think that is a point, actually, uh, I think you were getting at, right, where you kind of have to solve problems almost as they kind of come along. And a lot of the other work feels much more speculative. So I, I agree with you completely there. I would just say that the way I kind of reached to that conclusion is still from some way of like long-termism, where it's still the future I care about. But I agree that's probably more semantics than like a fundamental disagreement. Did you care about climate change before long-termism? Yeah, I mean, that's probably my bias, right? Um, but it also indicates that long-termism didn't get you there. Right? No, okay, okay, no, that's fair. But I would say that, like, I think I feel within, like, my EA journey, like, in quotes, right, um, I was much more focused on RCTs and the randomista stuff. And long-termism for me was a way to look at solutions which I had, like, previously discarded or, like, pro like cause priorities that I hadn't thought could be justified within the EA framework. And that is where I see, like, a lot of value within. That might be, like, a very niche thing that just happens to speak to me and I hope, like, a few other people. But I understand that is kind of, like, from a very different place where, where you guys are kind of coming at it from. I'll just jump on this wagon and just agree with everything you said, Luca. Yeah, so... I'm also really worried about ways that long-termism could play out, especially in these scenarios where it becomes parasitic on these other just like obviously good cause areas and a lot of attention gets funneled to these like massively speculative ideas which turn out to be badly misguided and then the entire movement ends up stalling. Um, but what do those kind of objections have in common? I think they're all like really practical worries. So like earlier on, we we're talking about all the kind of the slightly more philosophical, airy, methodological problems. And actually, I don't think you need to worry about that in order to worry about long-termism or at least some of its mm. uh, potential 
recommendations. I think all the problems can get going in a much more down-to-earth sense, which is just Beautiful. thinking about what works in the real world. Um, <laughs> and so that's where I'm like most most on board. Um, I still think that there are there are like things which we can do, which like plausibly uh, stands to improve the very long run future, which long termism draws out in a really unique way, in just the same way that effective altruism originally drew out the importance of certain kinds of mm -hmm. effective charities, even though those charities existed before. Um, so I think there's like a space for some kind of, you know, synthesis or agreement. Um, but these practical problems, the way in which you resolve those problems seems most straightforward. It doesn't involve like doing lots of complicated philosophy. So there's this kind of, it gets called the like epistemic objection to long-termism, which is, look, I buy into these ethical claims about the far future mattering just as much as near future we don't want a pure discount rate future people matter as much as present people but you also need to find the things we can do now again which stands to reliably improve how the long run future goes and maybe it's just the case that there are no such things or if there are we can't find them because we're not like omniscient and in that case as like super clever and um, robust as the kind of ethical philosophical part of the of the argument is there's nothing in the actual world to fill it out so there's nothing we can do about it <clears throat> that seems like the most plausible criticism of long-termism in general few things to say there though uh, and i can imagine this being the kind of pushback from the long-termist one is well if we don't know now then let's not just give up Let's fund and throw our time and effort into doing research, right? So we take a step back and the new problem is like finding the object level problems to go out and solve, um, which like makes some sense. And the other thing is that I'm pretty confident that there like are at least some things that we can do which stand to reliably influence the long run future and probably those things have to do with existential risks especially in cases where we're we're falling so short i think i've mentioned it like 15 times already but biological weapons for instance and nuclear weapons um and risk from ai those things actually seem quite concrete and solvable now so there are some examples and the question is how many of those examples there are i agree with everything except the risk from ai i mean the other ones are like <laughs> problems that we you know we know exist and of course we should you'll be the first to be enslaved dead. <laughs> yeah i already am enslaved it's too late i put it i put a good yeah. word in building the overlords um, as we speak because and, you know Bain's <laughs> an expert in ai so we his credence matters, right? we have to take that into right. account his credence right, right, right. is 100 yeah. percent that ai exactly yeah i wish it it would be so much easier if, if I was allowed to just use that move. Like you're talking to an expert, but obviously that's bullshit. Like I'm just a person who has biases like anybody else. But from an outsider perspective, you could describe me as a quote expert, which I just cringe mm. every time I say that word. But I'm in a top research lab studying artificial intelligence with people who are the ones that people think about when they talk about AI. Yeah, and like I'm not, I'm just a, I'm just a human being, right? Um, and 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 I would never 
dream of, of talking in this way that you should believe my beliefs over somebody else's beliefs. Um, even if I was asked via survey, um, from Toby Ord and Nick Bostrom, I would still like not think this is a valid way to, to argue. Um, and it seems like the whole AI risk and AI alignment conversation is entirely propped up from arguments of basically that form that um, a lot of experts are worried and therefore we should be worried too. And, and in general, I think thinking about AI safety is, is okay. It's, it's one of many important things to think about. Um, it's just not something which should be funneling money away from poor people. Um, uh, is, is it Ander, Ander Samberg? Or what's the guy's name? You know, he gave um, a talk about Popper. Yes, exactly. So that's the one I was yeah. referring to. Um, he, he did a beautiful analysis of cool. um, the poverty of resourcesism. It was it was excellent, and he addresses the mm. importance of having a feedback mechanism in the talk. He um, like this is the only way we can actually get traction um, when it comes to evaluating our theories. And it's super interesting, like when you um, really digest a lot of Popper's thinking, because you can see how. Um, there are domains well outside of academia that are thriving because they have this feedback mechanism that you wouldn't typically think of. So, for example, um, stand-up comedy is, a, yes. is an interesting example because you can try Nick Bostrom jokes was a stand-up comic and he said that his favourite part no, of doing really? was the feedback because you immediately know whether you've made a bad joke or a good joke. Yeah. And so so there is like nice. uh, development there. Um, same with uh, jiu-jitsu. So BJJ, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, a friend of mine teaches it and just the way that he was, um, talking about his teaching strategies was completely Popperian. Um, he just, he didn't know about Popper and stuff, but it was like, I want my students to have certain realizations and, um, they'll try things and they'll be then falsified by being dropped onto the mat and stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, Popper didn't invent trial and error in Venice. <laughs> it's not that he invented trial and error. It's just, he recognized its deep philosophical significance compared to other methods, which are, um, proposed. But, but anyway, like the point is. Samberg recognized the importance of this feedback mechanism. And we don't have this. We can't have this dealing with the long-term future. Um, okay. And this is, this is why uh, I think all research along these lines is ultimately going to come up with nothing. Because all we really have to get traction are arguments and stuff. But All or most? Um, <laughs> Uh, let's, let me, let me say most, most, uh, like until we can start getting traction, um, through a feedback mechanism, we're just writing science fiction and science fiction is interesting for idea generation and stuff. And you can generate good ideas, but you only can evaluate which ideas are good and poor by some feedback mechanism. And unless we have that injected into the system. And importantly, even if some are right, you won't, you won't know, know it. Exactly. Right? That's the issue. It's not that you're coming up with like necessarily wrong ideas. It's that you can't differentiate yeah. the right ones from the wrong ones or the better ones from the worst ones. And so that's the issue. It's not like, obviously we can't say everything coming out of the community is wrong. It's just that we have no fucking idea which one, we can't falsify any of it. Like, And also like um, there, it isn't just some low risk thing that you're rolling dice. It's it again is um, pitting the well-being of people alive today against the well-being of an infinite number of people in the future. So it's every dice roll is, is a way to forget about a current problem through one more bullet on the 80,000 hours problem profile. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, here's another dice roll. Here's one reason why we can't have both S risks and climate change, but let's just make climate change go down one more notch. Let's roll the dice again. And now we have John, John Hamm and <laughs> roll the dice again. And every single time it just goes down further and further and further. And yeah. it's forgotten uh. about. I, I think that's 
really interesting. I think like it's it's getting me to think about this important distinction, which admittedly I hadn't really made. I think before this this conversation, which is that there's two very different like conclusions from long termism. Oh, I guess like like two different ways you can use it. And I think I'm finding myself like more and more on one side of it. So I guess like on the one hand, we talked about this like long termism taking these bets and. Uh, mostly focus around these these S risks, which can often seem sci-fi. Which I, I like, Finn. I think um, X risks are like something that is like worth considering, and I think we're paying too little attention to. But I definitely see the danger from that. I think the other point where I might be like falling more, or like where I'd be more comfortable getting behind, is this thing of using, like, almost in a political economy sense, like these future generations just to like be able to make decisions where I just think we are like very short term at the moment and making that moral argument might be enough to like sway a decision. And I don't think, I mean, I'd be interested to hear if like any of you like disagree with that, like as a statement. I, I didn't track the, the, the statement or at least uh, perhaps ben, did you? Um, I, I think I misunderstood yeah. um, what the actual uh, second part was. That- yeah. So let, let me rephrase. So I think like um, an example to maybe give is that like, let's say we take something like climate change, right? And we run a cost-benefit analysis and we find out that like we should be limiting it to two and a half degrees, but you know the extra effort it's going to take to like two or one and a half degrees is not worth the costs. Then you could like make the like argument that, okay, but like it's not just us, right, who are going to live in this world, it's all these future generations. And because it's such a huge amount, right, you then have the moral argument to say, okay, we're going to go down and keep it below one and a half degrees. And I definitely understand the concern that I think you rightfully raise is that this can be a really slippery slope where then all of a sudden you're doing these really horrible things um, in the name for this like utopian future. But that is still where I see a lot of value in long-termism, just where you look at like human nature, or you look at society as a whole, we are like incredibly impatient and that causes a lot of problems. And thinking about this and i think reflecting on this even if it's not in this like expected value kind of sense i think is really really worthwhile and i do think has important conclusions for like effective altruism when you think about what the most effective things are to do in the future and i think that just means being a bit more paranoid about like nuclear war or biological risks and the like and and climate change as well right for me but i think like that's where i see the value the practical value right of of long-termism is in being able to to make that that moral case i guess one one interesting um thing to mention here is uh just our success uh like our uh record of success in dealing with previous other things that would have been described as existential risks, for example, ozone layer, acid rain, overpopulation, lack of fertilizer that um, caused like wars in the end of the 1800s and stuff. Um, and human beings are incredibly good at solving problems, which at the particular uh, time in history seemed insurmountable, right? Seemed like there was absolutely no way we were going to overcome this. And and before climate change, it was called global warming. And before that, there's global cooling. Developing a vaccine in a year. Getting yeah. colder. Yeah, yeah. Developing a vaccine in a year. And so human beings are like really great at um, solving seemingly insurmountable existential uh, risks. Um, and... And I just want to emphasize that because it seems like a background assumption is that, like, if it wasn't for long-termism, we would 
uh, not care about the long-term future and we wouldn't be able to proceed when really I think um, much of history can be viewed from the lens of preserving the long-term. Like what do you think the fight against fascism was all about in World War II, if not per, um, uh, like ensuring the long-term future of, of uh, uh, the species? This is a long-termist uh, cause. It's yeah. not described that way. Uh, so. Point taken. I think the the thing where and I might be wrong here, but like the thing where I'm kind of, I think, getting at is that it's not like an either or thing. You're you're right that we maybe avoided like the worst consequences, right, of these things. And, you know, in all likelihood, we'll survive the worst consequences of climate change as well. But there is still, right, like a meaningful difference as if you just barely make it or if you do it with like room to spare and millions of lives saved, right? I think that's like where I'm getting at where like that thing might seem marginal and like maybe long-termism only really makes a marginal difference, but that can still mean saving like a million lives um, for something that just is worthwhile, right? And like, I, th I think that's kind of where it gets at. But I, I agree like the disagreement fundamentally there is small. And I'm also like super optimistic, right? About like value and like value creation and knowledge and all the like, and I, I definitely think we we have that in us. And um... this might be out of place, but one of the nice analogies that um, Will McCaskill came up with is to picture our trajectory as a cruise ship setting off from uh, like the UK to New York, for instance. And he said, "Look, imagine you jump out and you start swimming, and you start pushing against one side to change its course." You know, in the next half hour or hour, no one will notice the the difference in trajectory it's making. Um, but if you keep swimming, if you keep it up until it arrives at the States, it'll arrive in like Florida or something rather than New York. And maybe that's the point Luke is making about it's not so much neither or, it's just that when we're talking about trajectory changes rather than these kind of step changes like existential risk, it's nice to think about those metaphors as kind of, uh, you know, making these things more salient. Since I'm rambling, um, I want to say that like, I feel like we're kind of rounding things up. At least I have, I read out of things to say about <laughs> two hours ago. <laughs> um, but I'll just like say kind of where I am. So I think I'm kind of un like normatively and morally uncertain, just like probably you should be and most people are. But it feels like the most important and plausible objections to long-termism are the practical and epistemic ones that you and others raise. In other words, can we actually find anything that we can do right now to make the long-run future go better, at least beyond existential risk? And then once we've found those things, um, can we put them in practice without trampling on the feet of these other cause areas, which also matter? And can we implement these kind of long-termist trajectory changes without some kind of dangerous, like, ideological slide where we are justifying, like, all manner of, of present sacrifices and harms? in the name of and like in a way in which just things turn out really badly and where that ends me up is like luca i think you know very sympathetic to a kind of watered down long-termism and then like very interested in a stronger version of long-termism you know kind of curious to learn learn more and um i do think i actually said this at the start but 
yeah, that's kind of where I am. Yeah. So just to, I'll just give my little closing thoughts, which is everything you said basically sounds like a win from my perspective. Cause I, my goal is not to get everyone to abandon using the phrase long-termism. It's just to recognize that the pursuit of this one idea has the potential, if not has already started, um, hurting a lot of people by just uh, reallocating all of the focus and attention away from pressing current problems right now. Um, and it's done via this one move, which I'm going to continue to repeat until the cows come home, which is multiplying small numbers and big numbers uh, and associating that with some crazy sci-fi s- scenario and then using this as some sort of morally significant argument. And if that these components can be taken away from long-termism, then I'm completely in favor of long-termism. Um, it's just just those things that are quite worrying. And lastly, I think that the subject of ethics um, and morality is one that every human being who has interacted with another human being and has to figure out how to treat people kindly has a voice uh, in, and not one person is, one person is not or more or less capable of talking about this stuff than any other person. So, no. That's my comment. One thing I wanted to to add um, is there's like a great um, EA forum post by by Gregory Lewis about um, called like Beware Surprising and Suspicious Convergence, which I think just relates to a bit about what we talked. Basically, like the thing is, is that generally we might expect two things to be correlated, but not really at the very top. So as an example to, to give to listeners, um, we would expect that somebody who's very good at tennis um, would also be good at basketball because they're both generally fit and you imagine that there is some correlation. But right at the very top, you no longer suspect that correlation to hold and it might even be negative, right? And I think the way that I kind of see that relating to our debate about long-termism and some of the the questions about what it actually means in practice is that I think in general, acting in the favor of the short term is also good for the long term, which is why I don't think personally I'm too concerned about these more like authoritarian slips and stuff. I think generally... I mean, it's to be proven is just my intuition, but generally I think that will be the case. But when you're really optimizing, I do think long-termism promises to reach some counterintuitive things that we might not have thought about before, or maybe correct some some failures that I see in the market or, or in government at the moment. And that's like the valueism where I see long-termism. But I think this discussion has really helped me hone in maybe on those aspects more than the the yeah the expected value things, which I definitely see. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I'm certainly not arguing against using future generations as an argument in the political sphere. So if you're arguing, for example, about like climate change and what the carbon tax should be, I'm all in favor of saying, um, we, you know, we should, th- we should take future generations into account, right? We should think of like the possible devastation we're enacting on the world and use that to just like argue about, uh, the trade-offs between various policies and how, um, how intense you want to be about shutting down certain industries, for example. Um, but what I'm what I'm not in favor of is like pretending that we have knowledge about um, future events and how certain actions now are going to influence the future, um, and even trying to get at that information via math um, and trying to conjure information sort of out of thin air. Even though no one would claim we're trying to do that, but I think by just doing the math and then writing these numbers down, it conveys a certain sense of uh, of certainty that we just like don't have when it comes to that. Um, uh, I can see Finn wants to rebut my point. <laughs> no, 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 not, not at all. I was just thinking of a way to sum up your worries. And, you know, one thing maybe worth saying is that 
it seems to me that the parts of long-termism which you're worried about actually have little to do, at least intrinsically, with either the future or the fact that the, that future is long. Um, it's to do with all the paraphernalia that gets associated with it and the ways, the kind of the frameworks for reasoning which yep. go along for the ride and the kind of formal methods which people buy into too much and so on. So there's nothing wrong with caring about the long-run future. No, of course. Yeah. You just care about the kind of ways of, of reasoning about it. And how those reasons are used to swamp every other consideration. Sure. Right? Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. The fi- yeah, the final point I'll make, which is very unfair of me to bring up four hours and 25 minutes <laughs> into this conversation, <laughs> which I'm realizing we didn't touch on, which is a bit of a shame, but um, either we can talk again or I can just have the final word on it because I'm right and have authority, um, is a common rebuttal I'll hear to, like, um, to people arguing against long-termism is like, look, every action we take has long-run consequences. And so you have to care about the long-term future no matter what, right? Like, even by distributing bed nets in Africa, those are going to have super long-run consequences. So either you have to start doing expected value calculations and think really hard about what the long-run future entails um, because any action you take has significant influence on it. And so by not dealing with that question, you're just like um, a priori, assuming that your favorite short-term action has beneficial long-term consequences. Um, But what this misses is the option of refusing to uh, answer questions that we can have no way of answering. So the, instead of trying to right now optimize exactly how we want the future to go, um, it's to recognize that every action that we take is going to have consequences. They're going to lead to future problems. And the best thing we can do is set up, a societal infrastructure and have as many people ready to tackle those problems as they inevitably arise. So right now we have reason to believe that like distributing bed nets um, is an incredibly good thing and can save people's lives. Um, and then of course, this is going to have certain consequences that we can't foresee, right? This might, this is going to speed up economic development of certain countries, which uh, perhaps leads to more greenhouse gases or more factory farming or so- something that we can't imagine, right? There's going to be ideas and political institutions that arise out of these countries. But instead of trying to guess at what those are right now, we could just recognize that we will tackle those problems as they arise. And, um, you know, we, we could just call this problem cluelessness and then freak out about how we can't predict the long run future. Or we can just, of course, recognize that, yes, predicting the long term future is impossible. Um, And the way we generate knowledge is by solving current problems, Um, recognizing those problems will yield inevitably to future problems and then solving those when they arise. Um, And this is good. This is how we make progress and generate knowledge. Um, And so the best thing we can do is like have institutions and uh, mentalities um, of in terms of like error correction that are ready to solve those problems as they arise. So there is, I just wanted to highlight that there is a, a third option and uh, here um, and it's not to just ignore the future or try and optimize it right away. It's just to recognize there will be problems um, and uh, we'll solve those as they come. Anyone object to letting Ben have the last word? I think I think the war of attrition at uh, four and a half hours has has worked. I think I'll just yeah, <laughs> yeah throw in the towel. Dance, <laughs> Fine, whatever. whatever. <laughs> Problems, inevitability, <laughs> air crash. I don't care. Percent. I don't care anymore. <laughs> we are actually now living in a very long run future. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was so much fun, gentlemen. I hope to do it again soon. Okay, if you've listened this far, well done. You probably deserve some kind of prize. Um, there's no write-up for this episode. 
but I have included some relevant links in the uh, episode notes. And as always, you can read the write-ups for all our interviews at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes. Also in the show notes is a link to Ben and Vaden's podcast. I'm a subscriber and the conversations they have are just consistently fascinating and challenging and generally uh, a lot of fun. So do give them a listen and I'm sure they would really appreciate it. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. There's also a new star rating form on each write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, hate mail, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Normal programming will resume next week. And until then, thanks very much for listening.